I grew up in the countryside in the Philippines, where people believe in mythical creatures and other superstitious things. As for me, I grew up not really paying attention to such things, until it happened to me. In 2010, I was a third year in university, when I got pregnant with my first child. University is a five to six hour drive away from home, so I only visit home every semester break, Christmas or the end of every semester. I was almost seven months along when I went home and told my parents about it. It was a mess, but in the end, they ended up being pretty supportive. On the first night I was back, they put a lot of garlic on my bedroom windows. I know why. In our country, there's a creature called Wakwak. It is a mythical creature that has huge wide wings, a long tongue, which they use to eat unborn children, and some say they look like fruit bats, and can even transform to a black pig or a dog. It would make this Wakwak sound in a slow manner. That's where the name comes from. They scratch on roofs, sticking their tongue through holes until it reaches the victim and drains it of blood. The first night was fine. I slept throughout the night. But things changed after I gave birth. One night, I woke up around 3 a.m., hearing a scratching sound on the roof. I didn't mind it at first, and I tried to go back to sleep. But then I heard that telltale sound, and it horrified me. That walk, walk. I was so terrified. All I could do was sit in the corner of my bed and pray. This would happen some nights, and it would always stop at 5 a.m. But after the first time, I asked my younger brother to sleep in my room with me. My story doesn't end there. One night, I was asleep with my newborn child when I was awakened by dogs howling. But they didn't sound alert. They sounded scared. I've never heard dogs howl like that. This sound was quickly followed by a woman's voice. It seemed to be close, like she was just inside my room. And then it stopped for a moment. Eventually, she began to talk again. I could not really understand what she was saying. This time, the voice seemed so far away from me, I froze for a while and remembered the stories I heard when I was younger. They say that if the voice you hear seems so near, it means the opposite, and when it seems far away, it means it's close by. I gathered myself, grabbed my baby, and I ran towards my parents' room. The moment I entered into my parents' room, the howling stopped, and the peaceful night returned. I contemplated whether or not I should wake my parents up, or try to go back to my room, but I couldn't stop thinking that she was back there still, just waiting for me. This thought terrified me, so I decided to stay and wake my parents up. I told them what had happened, and I stayed in their room with my mom and younger brother. Dad stayed in my room until I went back to university. That moment, that night, 
It will always give me goosebumps, but I'm glad my baby was unharmed. Beware the walk-walk. The Bajan Goblin from Carl G. My family is originally from a small yet popular island of Barbados before moving to New York decades ago. Whenever I visited the island as a child with my younger sister, we always had a great time. The warm temperatures, sights, and beautiful beaches always kept us occupied with fun. Now as an adult with my own two young kids, I enjoy seeing their excitement and fun whenever we visit the island. There was a plan between my wife and I that when our children were old enough, we would move into my parents' home there and raise our family. The education system was very good, and it was also much safer living there compared to New York. The house in Barbados was my mother's, and she only used it during the summer, and only for a month. It was in the parish of Christ Church, a densely populated part of the island near the capital, and a bunch of tourist attractions. Yet, there were still a lot of trees, fields, and plant life. It was common to see rows of buildings and homes on one side of the street, but a lot of bushes and trees on the other side, which would look like a mini-jungle. You could see a lot of wild animals there, like turtles, birds, and even monkeys. When the opportunity arose, we were ecstatic to finally be able to move there. I was able to find a good job to support us, and soon enough my wife got her cake designing business off the ground. As we were settling into our new home, we met our neighbors. Everyone was very friendly and helpful. Our little neighborhood was off a main road, down a quiet road. The houses were all separated by large yards and bush, so there was a bit of privacy from each other, too. There was one house next to our own that was abandoned mid-construction. That happened 30 years ago, and it's been vacant ever since, overrun by bushes and vines. I always felt uneasy about that place. Sometimes I felt something was watching me from within. I never let my kids play in the yard over there, without one of us watching close by. As weeks passed, I had brief chats with the neighbors. They would often suggest keeping the door shut when no one was home, and always locking everything down at night. It sounded like the common sense type stuff, to keep monkeys, mosquitoes, and even burglars out. Barbados isn't as bad with crime compared to New York, but everywhere has their criminals. This advice was a given, and wasn't something I really thought over. But what was weird was that every single person we spoke to gave us this advice. I did notice at night, as it grew late, everyone would have their doors and outside gates locked and windows shut tight. Being in that we were in the Caribbean, I could imagine the heat inside those buildings. As for my family, at night we left our windows and curtains open to get as much of the cool evening inside as possible. The breeze was a godsend. Although nothing happened, there were some moments at night when I would wake up and I would catch a glimpse of something in the window. It was a brief shadow of a figure looking inside, but when I would clear my eyes, 
the figure would be gone. I assumed it was my sleepy eyes playing tricks on me, so I would just go back to sleep. In the following weeks, we were beginning to notice small things missing. An earring here, a small chain there. Even my kids mentioned they couldn't find certain toys. At first, I figured it was due to the chaotic atmosphere of moving into a new home, but I began to think more of the warnings my neighbors gave us. I became more observant of the things around the house, and I became a light sleeper at night. I still wasn't ready to board up my house like a prison like everyone else. I just had to be more vigilant. Then, one night, I woke up to the sound of something running across the roof. It was a metal roof, and I heard the clicking and clanging of something with sufficient weight up there. I got out of bed, and I tried to follow the footsteps over my head. It couldn't be a bird or even a monkey. These footsteps were far too heavy. I followed the sound to my kids' room. Their window was open, but there were still bars over them for security. Then I remembered what my neighbors kept telling me about keeping them closed at night. As I looked at my children, who were fast asleep, I saw something jump down from the roof in the nearby window. I crept over to the window and looked out catching a glimpse of something running around the corner of the house. I told my wife to get the kids and to take them to our bedroom. I locked the door and I called the police. I grabbed my gun and I went outside. I crept around the corner, making my way towards the kids' window, where that thing had jumped down. I could hear something like flat feet slapping the pavement ahead of me, as if something was running around. When I turned that corner, I saw it. This creature was up on my kid's window, with its arm feeling around inside, searching for something. It was humanoid in shape, with pale white skin, big eyes, a wide mouth that hardly contained its many sharp teeth, and it was nude, although I couldn't see any genitals. It also had long white hair that ran down its back. I noticed it had inhumanly long fingers and long feet. It wasn't very tall at all, as it was mostly hunched over. At most, it was four and a half feet tall. The closest thing I could compare it to would be Gollum from Lord of the Rings, but with a lot of white hair on its head that ran down midway towards its back. It then noticed me looking at it, and after a few moments, it ran off around the corner of the house. Part of me wanted to run back inside and hide with my family until the police arrived, but there was something else that urged me to follow it, to find out what the hell this thing was. It could be a threat to my family, and I would not be able to rest easy at night, knowing this thing was running around outside my kid's window reaching in through the dark. So I gripped my gun, and I followed it. I could hear its feet flapping up the stairs to the roof deck. I followed it up. As I was looking around, I began to have second thoughts. If I cornered this creature, things could get dangerous. But it was too late. It was coming over the ridge of the roof, right towards me. 
It was hissing and showing its teeth. I aimed my gun at it as I was slowly backing away from it. I was terrified. Everything that was my motivation to chase this thing seemingly vanished. The creature was going to attack me, and I wasn't sure if I was capable of defending myself, not when I was this scared. It charged me, and I fell back as I fired the gun in fright. I've no idea if I hit it, but it hissed and made a hard right turn, making a twenty-foot leap towards a mango tree that was next to the house. As I picked myself up from the ground, I could hear something fall from the tree and land into the bush. At that moment, the police arrived, and they heard the gunshot. I told them that it was some intruder. I had shot at him to chase him away, and he jumped into the bush in the abandoned house's yard. It was the only time that night that I thought with a clear head. I knew the cops would not believe that I just chased away a boogeyman. As the police scoured the area, my neighbors came out due to the excitement and the sound of the gunshot. Many of them were carrying bats or frying pans and other handheld makeshift weapons to help. I told them the story of the human intruder to keep things consistent and for anyone to not doubt my sanity. After a few minutes, the police came back saying that they saw a path the intruder may have taken towards the abandoned house. Although they found no one in the house, they found a lot of random belongings of people in the neighborhood, even myself. It then dawned on me that this thing was in my house at some point, and I got a cold shudder down my back. A few days later, there was nothing new from the police to report. I paid someone to chop down all the bushes from the abandoned house property so that nothing or anyone could hide in it. The abandoned house itself had no doors, nothing covering the windows, since it had been abandoned mid-construction. I took some time to do some research on the internet. I needed to find something that resembled what I saw. I needed an explanation. Surprisingly, there was nothing in Barbados that came close although I did find stories of creatures in Europe, specifically of mischievous goblins. There were countless stories of goblins that stole jewelry, money, and personal belongings from people's homes. They were usually not dangerous, but mischievous, until you got in their way. Then they would become a threat. They could become vindictive, vicious, dangerous, for a while, I wondered how did this thing get here from Europe. Then I realized Barbados was a British colony in the past, and at some point, it or its ancestors may have come along the ships back then. It and its ilk could have been here for centuries, but was able to keep out of the public eye, staying alive in the shadows. We never found its body, and I haven't seen any sign of that thing since that night. But I can't shake the feeling that it's still out there. We now have central air conditioning for the house, so it's much easier to keep all the windows and doors shut throughout the night and day. I just wondered if I made a mistake going out after it that night, of injuring it. I pray that it's dead or scared off permanently, 
because I don't want it to come back after my family for revenge. It's only a matter of when. My Family's Banshee from Giaccio Frame When we were younger, my older sister would always speak of this old lady who cried and screamed whenever she came to visit her. And apparently after every visit, someone close to us in our family would die. Throughout her life, up until just this weekend, she was convinced that the woman she had been seeing was some sort of evil person or entity, someone to blame for the deaths of her loved ones. In an attempt to get rid of her, my sister did all she could with sage and other cleansing rituals. But then something horrifying happened. My brother-in-law had done some major permanent damage to his ankle while doing his drywall installation job somewhere in the city or nearly outside of it. That's when the old lady came back to see my sister, wailing as before. She was weeping hysterically as always, giving my sister a cause for concern. She kept a close eye on her injured family member. It may have just been a broken angle, but anything could go wrong. As soon as he was feeling better, the weeping woman did not return for a long time once again. Now, considering my family has Celtic background, my older sister believes that what she was experiencing, this screaming old lady, it must have been a banshee. The spirit isn't meant to be feared. They're said to be indicators that someone is hurt, sick, dying, or has already passed. They're in no way harmful, but more helpful in the sense that they stick around forever, warning you of anyone close to their deathbed. That explains why my sister could never get rid of her, no matter what she did. She was simply trying to help, even if the screaming was agonizingly scary. The Fairy in the Woods from Cam Bay I loved the woods. At least I used to. I live in a more closed-in community where the tale of fairies are well known. My nan always told me that if I went into the woods alone, I could be taken by the so-called fairies or fae folk. But me and my cousin, let's call him Mike, well, we never believed in the old tales of fairies and always thought our nan was crazy. But... I now know how wrong we were. At the age of 13, we decided to go into the woods, building a fort in the trees, normal kid things around my area. But Nan made sure to tell us to go together and to never separate. We decided to forget her warning, crazy old Nan, but we soon regretted that decision. Mike was holding a bag with all of our gear in it, including a bottle of water. As Mike was getting the tarp to cover the branches, he asked me to go to the pond and get more water. Now, of course, I always thought my nan was crazy, but something about walking that path made me feel uneasy. So I asked if he could go, and I made up an excuse about my leg hurting or cramping. Mike rolled his eyes. I doubt he believed me. But without a rebuttal, he left. 
I started to throw the tarp over the tree branches. But then, I... I felt it. A cold, sharp breath down my neck. I immediately flung around, but no one was there. So, I told myself it was just a gust of wind. I continued with what I was doing, but now there was a bit of a chill in the back of my mind. It was getting dark soon, and Mike never came back, so I was getting worried. I grabbed my flashlight and began to head down the path. But the further I went, the darker it got, and the dread I felt became stronger. I was afraid to continue, but I forced myself to, because I had to find Mike. Eventually, I made it to the pond, but I never saw my cousin anywhere. I called his name over and over. I was scared he may have gone home without me, abandoning me in what was now the dark woods. I ended up giving up, turning to walk home, but I saw someone in the trees. They were close, and I shone my light on them to see if it was Mike, and I honestly thought it was him. He was in the tree, smiling and waving down at me. So, with a nervous smile, I waved back. He then proceeded to motion for me to come closer, so I listened and began to walk over. But just like that, I froze. I saw the eyes on Mike. They were white and reflective. I then recalled how my nan told me that fairies can take the forms of people. People you know. People you love. And the only way you can really tell the difference is their pupils. I slowly walked backwards, but as I did so, the imposter Mike slowly frowned and charged at me full force after jumping down from the tree. I managed to grab the bag off the ground, running home as fast as I could. But just as I saw the house, something jumped on me. I managed to kick it off. It was that Mike thing, so it made sense that I could push him off easily, as Mike was much smaller than me. As I got back up and ran, I got to the step where my uncle was having a smoke. He saw me being chased and immediately grabbed his pocket knife. He pulled me behind him, but as soon as he did, that fake Mike cut into him with its nails. My uncle let out a curse and punched at it, causing it to run away with an eerie smile. My now bleeding uncle carried himself along with me to the front door to reveal my nan and cousin crying at the table. My nan immediately ran and hugged me, and my cousin did the same. They both had been worried, because Mike said he had been chased by someone who looked like me. My cousin went home that night, and I slept with my nan. From then on, I was afraid to go in the woods, and I always listen to my nan when she talks about fairies. Thai Love Potion from J. Eon My grandmother was born and raised in a rural village in the south of Thailand. She lived with her grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, who was the village witch doctor and healer. 
Suffice to say, she has a plethora of stories about charms, spells, objects, and possessions to tell whenever the chance arises. However, there is a story that she told me as a cautionary tale for all the girls in the family, and it was a very frightening tale for a tween girl as I was at the time when I heard it, which was when I had a newfound curiosity towards romance with boys that my peers were of course simultaneously experiencing. The story she told goes like this. In her village there was a man who was poor and very ugly. He was unmarried, despite being nearly forty years old, a very old age to still be a bachelor at the time. Otherwise, nothing about him was outstanding or memorable. He was just like any other unassuming average guy in the village. Just a few yards away lived a family with a very beautiful teenage daughter. It was very popular, and there was an unending stream of proposals from within the village and elsewhere to marry the gorgeous girl. The poor, ugly man, having seen the girl grow up and blossom into this attractive, sought-after damsel, proposed to her family to marry her. And, unsurprisingly, he was rejected by the girl, and even had the door shut in his face by the rest of her family. Most people in the village and the girl's family were quite certain that she would select the creme de la creme of her suitors to marry, most likely a young, handsome, successful scion of an affluent family. No one thought much of the rejected man, as there were many other people whose proposals had been turned away. One week later, the girl disappeared. Her family and some villagers went searching for her, when they realized that the man nearby had went missing too. After several days of searching, they collectively concluded that the girl had run away with the man when no one was out and about. They assumed that the girl did in fact love the man, despite her initial rejection, choosing to start a new life with him far away from the judgment of the villagers, due to the disparity in their age and appearance, and the man's poverty. A decade passed and life was the usual in the village. There was none of the lingering social anxiety that we're used to today when someone goes missing because it was not unheard of for girls to run away from home to escape arranged marriages, or secret lovers eloping, or married mothers abandoning their unhappy homes. One day the girl suddenly reappeared at the entrance of her family home. Everyone was surprised at her return, and questioned her about the events leading up to the day of her vanishing. It had been ten years at that point. She explained that she suddenly fell madly in love with the poor ugly man while out in the evening, and at the man's behest, agreed to run away with him in the middle of the night to another village very far away so that no one could find them. She bore him two children and lived the typical domestic housewife life for the most part of the past decade, looking after her children and taking care of her husband. She never questioned the things that were happening and had no control over her actions. It was as if she had been living in a constant, trance-like state for a decade. The morning of her return, she woke up feeling extremely disgusted by her husband and had lost all interest in her children. She wanted to return to her family badly and did just that, leaving her husband and children asleep, not even telling them that she would be gone. Her family found her story very fishy, 
So they took her to see my great-great-grandfather, who very quickly deduced that a love potion was involved. A Thai love potion is an oil-like substance that is made from the little pockets of fats around the chin and jawline of deceased people. The oil is collected by burning a deceased person's mandible with a special candle until liquids appear, which are then collected in vials, and a particular spell is placed on the fluids by a black magic witch doctor. Even though these are called love potions, they are in fact inducement of extreme obedience in liquid form. The targets of these love potions lose all free will, emotion, and awareness. They are used not just for romantic targets, but have been used by criminals, causing victims to hand over all their money and jewels, among other things. Despite the love potion's power, it does not have a permanent impact on its targets, depending on the concentration of the potion and the competence of the black magic witch doctor. The effects can last anywhere from a few hours to a few years. A person under the influence of a love potion will regain all physical and mental control of themselves once the effect wears off. Hence, the love potion needs to be continually applied to the target to ensure constant sway over his or her life. Even though she was no longer a teenager, she was still very beautiful and recognizable, so many sympathized with her experience. That is why when her husband of ten years, the poor and ugly former neighbor of the girl's family, showed up to try to bring her home. There was a huge uproar from the girl's family and the villagers. They chased him out when he started begging to see her. He returned to the village with his two children in tow, thinking that the sight of her children would soften her heart, but she remained adamant, refusing to leave her family home no matter how much her children begged to see their mother. She felt no connection to those children at all, even if they were her flesh and blood, and she definitely did not have any loving memory of the marriage and the family life she had had. Since she refused to leave her family's house, she did not allow the man and the two children inside, so there was no way to apply a love potion to her again to make her conform to his wishes. In addition to that, my great-great-grandfather, the white magic witch doctor, gave her a protective charm and an anti-love potion, which he instructed her family to scatter in the general vicinity of the house so that no other mind-controlled magic would affect her or anyone in the household. He gave the girl a special blessing that grants protection from spiritual attacks and removed any black magic residue. The man came back to the village regularly, trying to convince her to return to him and their children, but she never once gave him any attention. Two years after her return, she married a man of her liking with the blessings of her parents. She lived with her new husband for the rest of her life and bore many children with him, never once acknowledging her previous husband and the two children from that marriage. It was like the ten years she experienced with this man never happened. It was all like a dream, my grandmother would say, concluding the story with that. She'd always tell this story whenever my female cousins express romantic interests in boys or someone we know is getting married. She claims that she wants to make sure that it was real love and not the result of some mind-control magic. Real love, from what she taught me is rational and deliberate, 
No one becomes completely different overnight for love, and it lasts for a long time, so it can't just disappear within a day. McDonald's Night Shift from Ceriza I used to work at a McDonald's that was open 24-7 in a small part of my town. I live in a city, but the restaurant itself was situated in an isolated part of the suburbs, which bordered farmland and woods. I have quite a few unnerving stories from my experiences there, but all of them pale in comparison to the one I'm about to tell you. After the recent firing of another employee, I was rotated to fill the hole left in the typical night crew. As you may know, McDonald's doesn't use set shifts, but instead fills in employees to time blocks as needed. As I was a recent hire, they had no issue flipping my schedule around. I was only informed Sunday by my boss that I'd be working from 10pm to 4am that week. Begrudgingly, I went to sleep as late as I could, which ended up being around 5 in the morning on Monday. That way I'd be better prepared for my new shift. When I arrived at the restaurant, it surprised me how quiet it was. There were no customers in the building, and the other employees seemed to be keeping to themselves. We weren't a restaurant equipped for DoorDash or anything like that, so there wasn't really much work to be done until someone came in the door or through the drive through The other employees didn't talk to me at all. The only one that did was the only other woman working in the restaurant. I'll call her Sarah. She told me the current staff already had the kitchen taken care of, and said I should just work the front of the restaurant. I found it weird that she was instructing me like that, despite not being a manager. But as it didn't seem like one was on duty anyway, I listened to her, and set myself down behind the register. From where I was seated, I had a pretty nice view into the front of the restaurant. I could see part of the parking lot, which was only illuminated by a single sodium lamp, the kind that glowed a pale orange. To the left of the lot was the road, and to the left of the road were the suburbs, which slowly dissolved into rural territory. Grass grew a few feet high, and a thick forest began about fifty yards from the street, and stretched as far as I could see. I spent most of my time on the phone and gazing out the front windows, we only had about four or five customers an hour. Only once that week did a group of people actually come in. It was early Wednesday morning when three rather tall, pale-faced guys entered the store wearing full camouflage outfits, with the pattern broken by the brightly colored hats on top of their heads. It was a welcomed sight, as they were energetic and talkative. After they told me what they wanted... I casually asked why they were dressed like hunters, considering it was 1 a.m. All of them grew silent, and the one closest to me said they didn't have the opportunity to change since they got dressed. I found that pretty odd, but didn't ask any other questions as I handed him his order number, which was really just a formality considering it was the only order at the time. After they got their food, they sat down at the booth closest to the door. As they ate, I thought I caught them glancing at me every now and then. I probably could have forgotten about it if it weren't for what happened next, 
After the men finished eating, two of them stood up by the door, as the one who I spoke to previously came up to me. In his very thick country accent, he said the following, which I still remember word for word. Be careful, doll. There be some weird things in these here woods. He maintained eye contact as he said this, and he backed up slowly, not waiting for a response, before he turned around and left the restaurant with his friends. Nothing else out of the ordinary happened that night, but I still couldn't shake what the man had said to me. The following night, I started another shift. It was very rainy out, though the shift itself was uneventful and, if anything, slower than the other days. It must have been around eleven when it first happened. Stopping to look up from the register, I saw a figure outside of the restaurant. I adjusted my glasses and squinted my eyes, but I still couldn't make it out fully. From what I could tell, it was a man. It looked like he was wearing a large trench coat. He was standing at the very edge of the streetlight in the parking lot, right where the pavement met the tall grass. I kept staring at him, and he didn't move. I probably watched this peculiar man for a good few minutes before I looked away, and in all that time I could really only see that he was very tall. I turned around, and through the gaps in the kitchen hardware I could see my co-workers, which did relax me a little. I was just about to say one of their names to get them to come look at the man, but as I turned around, I saw that he was no longer there. He had vanished. I recalled the hunter's words from the night before as I tried to rationalize it. Why would some guy be out there standing still in a McDonald's parking lot so late at night? No new cars were outside, so I knew he wasn't preparing to come in for food. Finally, I assumed he was just walking home and had stopped under the streetlight to check his phone for directions, or something along those lines. It didn't make much sense otherwise, but that explanation was enough to calm my nerves. We only got a few customers between when I first saw the man and when I saw him next, which was a while past one in the morning. I know because I was just checking my phone when I looked up out the window and I saw him again. Only this time, he was closer. I could make him out better because he had moved in from the very edge of the light and was now directly under it. His face was still in shadow, or something, because I couldn't see it. I could clearly make out his coat, however. It was large and long. It seemed to be a deep brown leather or facsimile, and it glistened under the orange of the light from the shine the rain gave to it. It also looked tattered, with large gashes in the fabric. I could hardly see the man himself, though. However, it was clear under the light that he was very tall. He was right next to one of the employee's cars, and he stood at least four feet higher than the roof of it. My chest tightened, and it started to become hard to breathe. He continued to stand, staring in the direction of the restaurant. Even though the windows were tinted from the outside, it felt like he was looking right at me. This time, I kept my eyes on him, and I called for Sarah. She came out from the kitchen a few seconds later, asking me what I needed. I could only point mouth wide open at the man. She saw him too, and walked forward a few paces, 
Who is that? She asked. I don't know. He was just there. Sarah moved towards the door, and to my unease, she opened it. From there, she called out to the perfectly still man. Hello? She paused, eliciting no response before saying something else. Can I help you? At this, the man, or whatever it was, took off. Almost instantly, it spun itself around and bolted in the direction of the woods. As it did this, I saw its legs rather clearly as the coat picked up from the wind resistance. What I saw chilled me. The legs were twisted or backwards. It looked almost like a dog's legs, only far longer. Sarah saw it too, and walked back inside without hesitation. She looked at me, expressionless, before muttering that if it came back, I should call her. She then returned to the kitchen, saying nothing else. I was in a daze for a little while after that. What just happened had felt surreal to me. I couldn't fathom what that thing was or how Sarah could remain so cool about it. Thankfully, though, the thing never returned during the rest of the shift, and I got home safely. That day, I did not sleep well at all. I remember waking up and falling back to sleep constantly, all the while anxious about that creature. When I awoke that afternoon, I decided against my better judgment to get prepped for work again. I didn't want to risk seeing the thing from the night before, but at the same time, I needed the money badly. When the night finally came, I was dreading my shift. As I finally pulled into the parking lot, I realized, to my horror, the streetlight that hung over the parking lot was out. I couldn't see what the damage was as it was nighttime, and the closest working light was a good 75 yards away. The parking lot felt more unsafe than it ever had. My entire walk to the restaurant, I was imagining the creature peering at me from the very edge of the darkness. That night, there were no customers. I mean, absolutely none. The restaurant felt so lonely and even more so when I found out Sarah hadn't clocked in. One of the people working in the back told me she called in sick when I asked about her. Between my only friend in the workplace being gone, no customers coming in, and my phone being out of power, the night was excruciatingly slow. Though I could barely see a foot outside of the restaurant since the light was out, I could have sworn that on many occasions I saw a figure moving, just out of sight. Somehow I managed to make it through the majority of my shift. I was looking at the store clock, which read 2.59, when it happened. Without warning, the front window on the left side of the door shattered, and as it did, a large rock came through. It skidded along the floor before arriving just on the other side of my till. I was frozen in terror and surprise. Two of the kitchen staff came out when they heard the noise, asking me what had happened. I just pointed at the window as I bent down and picked up the rock. To my astonishment, the rock was hot to the touch, almost burning my hand as I picked it up. Soon after that, we called the police. They arrived rather quickly, taking our statements and doing not much else. 
After locking up the store, we called it a night due to the vandalism and headed home early. It was rather awkward with everyone leaving at the same time, because where my car was, I had to wait until everyone filed out of the parking lot to leave myself. Just as I was about to pull away, though, I saw something truly terrifying. Out of the passenger window, I saw the creature again. It was standing up on the roof of the restaurant, towering above it ominously. Again, there were no lights nearby, and I could only make out its silhouette, a deep black on the dark purple early morning sky. But I knew it was there. As I stared at it, paralyzed, it seemed to drop its coat. And as it did, I noticed the silhouette grow noticeably skinnier. It was then that I saw it outstretch its arms, and it flapped them, revealing a massive pair of wings. Without any further delay, it took off into the sky, and with it I heard a sharp, ear-piercing noise, which I can only compare to when a fast vehicle breaks the speed of sound. As soon as it was clear from view, my reflexes kicked in, and I pulled out of the parking lot extremely quickly, flooring it well over the speed limit back home. Sufficed to say, I did not return to that McDonald's. What that creature was, Spriggan, Doppelganger, Demon, I don't know. All I do know is that I've never seen a more horrifying, inhuman creature, and I hope to never run into it again. To this day, I still sometimes have dreams about it. Take a girl's advice. If you're going to work a night shift, make sure it's somewhere a little more populated than a McDonald's in the middle of nowhere. Banshee in the Colorado Mountains From Wicked Skits My husband and I moved to Colorado. I was actually raised there. I was excited to share my home city with my husband. Well, it was October 2019, and all we had was our truck and a grand in our pockets. The decision had been spontaneous. We bought a pop-up camper in Colorado Springs, and decided to camp in Woodland Park. They have all-year-round camping, and it's free. The first week was quiet, except for the folks who were illegally hunting elk out there. Now, my husband got a drop in town, so I'd be alone till late midnight, of course, in October here, it snows. I noticed that it would get quiet outside the camper at night. That would give me goosebumps, and I noticed my dog, a Chewini, would whimper and hide under my blanket. Now, that's not how she usually is. She's usually attentive and guarding me. Well, that particular night, this made me nervous. I turned out my lantern and listened outside. I must have sat there for ten minutes and heard nothing that was out of the ordinary. I go to turn the lantern back on, and I hear the strangest thing. Loud and ghostly screams. These chilling noises were coming from more than one direction. There were multiple sources. Suddenly, a bunch of guys on ATVs pass by, and the noises stop. And soon after, my husband pulls up. He walked in and looked at me asking me if I was okay. I was pale as a ghost. I explained to him what happened. 
Now, my husband takes things like this seriously, whether it's supernatural or unexplained or what, and I thank him for that. He tried to make me feel better, and we went to bed around 2 a.m. But a couple of hours later, my husband wakes me up and whispers in my ear, telling me to not say anything, to just listen. The noises are back. Screams that sound like banshees all around the camper. We lay there, barely moving or breathing, just listening to the sound of these multiple things outside. My husband begins to shake. I look over towards him, but I saw from the light of the moon that right next to my husband's head, just outside the camper, which, mind you, is a pop-up camper, so it's just cloth, I saw next to him a shadowy figure. It seemed as if the figure was smelling my husband. Those screams got closer and closer all around us. It lasted for another hour. But luckily, they left. This would happen every night around 3 a.m. Towards the last of that month, before we packed up to Denver, the Banshee calls got worse. They would begin to claw and slap at the camper. Eventually, it would stop, but I remember the first time it happened. In the morning, my husband noticed he had a bad cut on his arm, and the pop-up camper's cloth had tears and scratches all over it. We were forced to have to sell it. We couldn't afford the cost to recloth the thing. What matters is we made it out of there alive. Possible Skinwalker from Levi. I'd like to begin with the typical I'm no writer statement, and I'm writing this to the best of my memories. It's been a while, so the time it happened is a bit blurry. I believe it was November of 2018. This was the only time I've ever seen this thing. I live in northern Kentucky, about an hour or so from Cincinnati, Ohio. I live right along a highway in a little valley-like area. Across the street is a small field. To the left of it is my neighbor's house and a yard light. Behind the field is a line of trees and a river. The field turns into a big hill. Behind my house is another large hill. And this happened around 12 at night. My family had just done laundry and all of it was still in the car. We had done bedding this time, so I went outside to go get one of my blankets. I normally look around quite a lot when I go outside at night, because I'm actually terrified of being out when it's dark, and I have been since I was little. I had just stepped off my porch, looking straight across the field. That's when I saw the most bizarre-looking thing, what appeared to be a hairless deer standing in the middle of it, facing towards me. Now, seeing deer is quite normal in the area. I live in the middle of rural Kentucky, there's deer everywhere. What really scared me about it, though, was it was hairless and pale. It had what looked like a thin layer of skin over its eyes, nose, and ears, too. As if it didn't have nostril holes or actual eyes, or at the very least, they were covered up. I froze once I saw it, and I couldn't process what I was looking at. I must have stood there for five minutes never moving, and it never moved, too. I couldn't smell anything bad. I actually couldn't smell anything at all. 
Once I snapped out of my frozen state, I ran back inside to grab a flashlight and to get a better look. When I came back out, that thing had already disappeared. These other incidents are minor. It could just be me getting scared over nothing, but I figured I'd add them anyway. I used to hike a lot on and around the hill in my yard. There was a small creek going through the part of my backyard as well that separated the backwoods from the field in my backyard. I would usually go across the creek and then follow it all the way back to my property. But one day, while I was on my way back, I heard something that sounded like a chicken, but distorted. It didn't at all sound right, and it was coming from up the hill. At the time, we did have chickens, but they never went back that far or near the creek. I ended up walking quicker to the creek to try and get across without running, and it wouldn't stop calling till I got to the creek. I didn't hear it anymore after that. This is another story that happened earlier this year in April. I was out hiking again, alone of course, way back in the woods along the creek. I was no longer on my property. The people that own the land on the hill own a lot of the woods back behind us, and there are several fields on top of the hills. I was hiking up one of the old tractor trails. These were cleared out pathways from the fields going across the creek in a spot in the valley back there. I decided to step off the path to look at some moss under the cedar trees, when I heard a rhythmic sort of clacking sound, like two rocks hitting each other down the hill from me. At this point, I was far away from the path. Where I heard it, it seemed to be coming very far right of the pathway, which was close to me. I decided to try and go towards it to see if I could spot what was making the noise, but I didn't see anything. I was texting my cousin during this, telling him what I heard. I ended up freaking out and calling my mom, staying on the phone with her until I got back home. The entire time it felt as if I was being watched. Maybe I was just paranoid. I haven't had any more incidents other than feeling a very strong presence when I go out past the creek since March. I'm not even sure what the creature was. I think it may have been a wendigo or skinwalker, but I honestly have no clue. Hopefully I never run back into this being again. The Hellhound That Hated Us All From Anonymous First off, I'd like to start by saying I'm someone who believes in the paranormal. I believe in witches, witchcraft, and all that good stuff. I've just turned 19, but this story took place when I was maybe 14. Back then, I lived in an apartment with my older half-sister and older half-brother, along with my little brother, who isn't half, and my mother. I'd also like to note that in this apartment, my mom had this family picture of all four of us kids and her. She also had separate pictures of each of us near the kitchen along a windowsill. This is important to the story later on. Me and my younger brother came back from school to find the house empty. I forget what happened, but for some reason, my brother and I got into a fight. I, being mad, went to my room and closed the door, trying to avoid my brother in the other room. I started to watch a movie. I clearly remember it was the blind side, when suddenly my brother comes barging in my room. He was half out of breath and looked like he had seen a ghost. 
He told me, while trying to catch his breath, that he had seen a dog in the bathroom. Judging by his expression and noticing how he never laughed or smiled, I could tell he wasn't joking. He was very serious. I told him to get in my room, and I closed and locked the doors. I then grabbed two of my Bibles from under my bed that I kept safe in a shoebox. I gave him the older one, and I held on to the newer one that I had recently got from my mother. We hid in my bed under the blankets completely terrified and shaken while grasping the Bibles close to our chests. We waited for what seemed like only a few seconds when the locked door to my bedroom just slams open hard on its own. It shook the whole room. My brother and I are completely horrified at this point. I suddenly begin to pray in my mind, asking God to take over the situation for us. Soon after I did that, we hear nothing after the door slams open, just complete silence. We waited for what seemed like forever, too scared to lift the covers off our heads. I was afraid it would show up looking for us if I did. Then my brother says, after a few minutes of waiting, that we should get up and see if it was still there in the house. We finally get up, and we found ourselves back to back with the Bibles held out in front of us. The first thing we did was check the bathroom. We looked inside to find nothing in there. We then scanned the entirety of the house to find it completely empty and quiet. We sit in the kitchen to process what had just happened. I started to ask questions to my brother about the thing he saw. I asked him what it looked like and he said it stood as tall as a kitchen counter and its legs were bent looking, almost as if they were broken. He said it stood halfway behind the door and it was facing the shower which means the opposite to where my brother was standing. He said it was slowly turning to face him and as it did so he could hear its bones cracking. He said that the head of it was like that of a goat. I then asked if it was see-through, or actually there, because a lot of ghost sightings are see-through. But he said he couldn't see through it, so it was really there. He explained that it appeared to have horns, and the mouth was drooling intensely, as it was chipped open like you would see on a dead goat skull, and its eyes were beady red. I was in complete shock when I heard this. I then started to process whether he was lying or not. First off, if he was lying, he would have laughed when he told me he saw it. Second of all, if this was a joke, he wouldn't be able to tell me as much detail about it, head on, like he did. Third, and most of all, if it really was a prank, how would he be able to slam open a locked door if he was by my side the whole time? He even told me not to tell mom about it, so I did as he asked because I myself didn't want to frighten anyone. I wished the story ended there, but it doesn't. A few days after this so-called hellhound attack, my mother yells at all of us to get up. It was about four or five in the morning, and she was very angry at all of us. Everyone was completely clueless as to why she would be so angry as to wake us all up at this hour of the day. She then asked us in a very angry tone, why we would knock over the pictures she had of each of us, and why the family picture was cracked right where all our necks met. We all looked at each other in confusion. Then I looked at my younger brother, and he gave me that same look of concern that it might have been that creature that scared us a few days back. 
We still proceeded to keep it a secret, and left it at that. Later on, I asked my younger brother to draw it for me, and he did. It was horrifying, and I wish I still had the drawing. I remember telling my dad about it, and he thinks it grew from our anger, since we had a fight before it happened. After we moved out of the apartments and several months went by, I finally told my mother about it, and she was very shocked. My mother is one to believe in the paranormal, and she knows that it is very much real. So when I told her about this event, she seemed shocked, and asked me why I didn't tell her the day that it happened. I simply said that I didn't want anyone to freak out about it, and she understood. Since then, I'd have to say that this is by far the creepiest encounter that I've ever experienced, especially since it slammed open a locked door like it was nothing. This episode of the Darkness Prevails podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. In a world where so much can weigh you down, it can be difficult to stay positive. Sometimes happiness is more rare than it should be. Personally, my issues with anxiety and depression leave me lacking energy and motivation throughout the week. Luckily, BetterHelp is there when you need them. BetterHelp can evaluate what you need and match you with a licensed professional therapist. Connect with people that are there for you in a private and safe environment. It's easy, convenient, and you can get started communicating in under 24 hours. Message your counselor whenever you need, and you can even schedule phone or video calls weekly. You don't need to bother sitting in a stress-inducing waiting room. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, too, but there is financial aid available for those that need it. Plus, BetterHelp is open to clients across the globe. Whether you suffer from depression, sleep trouble, grief, stress, or relationship trouble, you're sure to find a counselor to help you with BetterHelp. Start living a happier life today. As a listener of the Darkness Prevails podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month just by visiting betterhelp.com dpp. Join over 1 million people who have taken the brave step forward in managing their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash dpp. Thank you, BetterHelp. My Friend's Backyard From Yummy Tide Pods This started on a Friday, when I was riding the bus home from school with a friend of mine. It was my first time staying the night at this friend's house. I was really excited, because I'd never stayed the night at his house before. In fact, I'd never stayed the night with anyone before. Now, before I get started... Let me tell you about my friend. She's really into creepy stuff, like the occult and supernatural. She wasn't afraid of them, though. She had a passion and interest for them. On the other hand, I was terrified. She knew how scared I was of things like this, so she would never make me go out at night with her. Eventually, the bus skidded to a halt in front of her pink-bricked house. We hopped off and walked to the front door. It was locked, so she called her roommate. You at the house? she asked, taking off her NASA backpack and tossing it in the fold-out chair on the porch. I did the same. All right, she said, hanging up the phone. 
We'll have to wait, she said, putting her phone in her pocket. You want to hike in the woods for a while? She asked, gesturing at the large area full of trees behind her house. I nodded, and we walked into the forest. We had decided to play hide-and-seek, and she began to count. Even though it was broad daylight, I was kind of creeped out, so I stayed towards the front of the wooded area where the trees weren't so thick. But she found me within seconds. I groaned as she ran off to hide, and I began to count. I hid my face in my hands, the backs of them pressed against a large, old tree. It was completely quiet, except for the wind blowing through the canopy, making creaking sounds like an old house would. Once I was finished, I started to go deeper into the woods, jumping over creeks with shallow water. V, where are you? I started to shout her name, wandering around the woods. The deeper I went, the more creeped out I got. I did not enjoy walking alone in these thick woods. Oddly enough, I did get a reply from her. This way. Obviously, I began to move towards the voice, and every time I'd drift in the wrong direction, it would come again. This way. After a few minutes of this warmer, colder game, I soon heard her coming from behind a tree. I smirked. I knew she wasn't going to make it this easy. If I knew her, she would be planning to jump out from behind the tree to scare me. Instead, I would try to get the jump on her. I tiptoed as quietly as possible, making my way around the other side of the tree, the side I figured she wouldn't expect me on. I got lucky, because I did manage to sneak up on her. But when I made it around the tree and saw the figure's back, it wasn't my friend. This way. It continued to say in my friend's voice. It leaned out on the other side of the tree, looking for me, trying to see if I was coming in its direction. I was so horrified that I stopped breathing. If I choked up, if I made a sound, if I uttered anything, I was so close that this thing would see me. I'll try to describe it as best I can. It was tall and lanky, struggling to conceal its entire self behind the tree. Its skin was hanging off the bones, and it had hardly any muscle to it, and I believe it had horns on its head. As I gazed at it, hoping that it wouldn't turn around, I silently began to cry. Then, I gulped, took a deep breath. Then, all in one instant, I turned on my heel, and I ran for my life, all the while calling out V's name. But I couldn't find her, and I became lost. I ran faster, though, knowing that if it was chasing me, then I could not afford to stop. Soon, I found myself in a large clearing, two sides guarded by a fence, and the other two by trees. V found her way to me, asking what was wrong. I told her that she had scared me, because I couldn't find her. I hugged her, making the lie more convincing, 
and she pushed me off like she always did. We talked for a while, heading back to the house, as it was beginning to get dark. The remainder of my stay there, I did everything in my power to avoid going back in the woods. That night, we were lying down in her queen-sized bed. She was pressed up against the wall. I was on the edge of the bed. I glanced at her window at one point, as I was drifting off to sleep. I saw it again. It was trying to crouch itself behind some bushes, but it was too tall to hide its full body. It was very obvious, and I could tell that it was facing the window. Whether it was just watching us or waiting, I don't know. Despite my fright, I eventually fell asleep, and my slumber was full of nightmares. Gnome Sightings From Mikhail For the most part, the legends about fairies, gnomes, and elves that more recent generations grew up with paint these creatures as being mischievous, friendly, and often even cuddly creatures. Other more mature stories describe them as regal beings, with ethereal qualities. However, I believe the true nature of them is far from the quirky pixies or majestic tall elves of pop culture. I confess that I don't actually know what I saw, but I kind of convinced myself that it's pretty dang close to what I would expect a gnome to look like in real life if it were stripped of its anthropomorphic qualities and you were left with only a very organic, animal-like appearance. My first experience with what I believe was some sort of gnome-like being was in early 2013. I was staying at a cabin deep in the woods of upstate New York in early autumn with some friends. We were all around 13 to 16 at the time. We were no longer impressed or influenced by childhood stories or magical beings. As I was helping my friend's sister wash the dishes after dinner, I happened to look out the window, which was directly in front of the sink. It happened quickly, and maybe it was just my imagination playing tricks on me, but I could swear that after looking up and into the nearby tree line, I could make out two small, beady objects, reflecting a greenish-yellow light through the bushes. The first thing that came to mind was a raccoon or a possum. That would explain the short height and positioning of the eyes, though I felt like there was something wrong about that assumption. Something about the way the two objects shifted and blinked seemed wrong. It was a chilling sight. I stopped what I was doing, still holding on to a damp plate. I reached over to the light switch which controlled the back porch's light. I flipped it which bathed the porch and a portion of the woods in a warm glow. In a split second, the body which harbored the two glowing eyes was revealed before the thing quickly scurried out of sight. The revelation startled me and caused me to drop the plate, which shattered and cut my knee. The creature was so fast that I hardly had time to process what I saw. The bloody knee also did little to help my mind compose itself. The few details I did make out were enough to give me shivers later on, 
as I discreetly described the event to a friend as we were settling in to sleep for the night. I told him about the pale, greenish skin, which apparently draped over the creature's distorted frame, which had several distinct jagged arches along its back and shoulders as it crouched in those bushes. It had disproportionately long arms, though they almost seamlessly blended into the surrounding branches. Its face was by far the most disturbing and noticeable quality. The small, bald head had long wisps of whisker-like hairs protruding from just below its eyes, which were small and deeply sunken into bony sockets. The mouth, small and lipless, was slightly open, as if it were intrigued. I didn't see much more in terms of details, with the light the way it was, not to mention it was quite a distance away. My friend and I just shook it off as some mangy, deformed woodland critter. That was a much more comforting thought at the time. The second time I saw something which looked like the cabin's gnome was only a few months ago. It was around 10.40 p.m., and I was in a bus downtown, returning home from a trip. I looked out the window at one point, as I often do in bus rides and I noticed something disturbingly familiar hiding behind some trash cans. This time, though, there was a streetlight directly above it, which completely illuminated its ugly, small body as the thing violently tore into a discarded burger. It was like a small, emaciated rabbit or kangaroo with an arched, almost hunched back and long, bent-back legs. There was no visible tail, and its upper back and shoulders were distinctly bulbous, with a small head and an ugly humanoid face. Its long, stick-like arms ended in bony, sharp fingers. The scene was very reminiscent of a sewer rat eating trash in the way it crouched and twitched. Its face had a much more menacing and aggressive quality to it compared to the one I saw in 2013, and it had an overall sickly look to it. Needless to say, I was deeply disturbed, and I'm still not entirely sure what exactly that and the other creature were. But if I had to guess, I'd say those old-world legends of the hidden folk have a much less magical aesthetic than Disney or Hollywood would have you believe. The Western Skinwalker From Chris K. My family and I had recently moved from Vermont a few years ago to Baltimore, Maryland, where my father had gotten a job at the Annapolis Naval Academy as an instructor. I was 18 years old at the time, and my older brother Jeremy, at 21 years of age, was following in my father's footsteps. He was double majoring in physics and nuclear engineering at the Naval Academy. He was a hard-working, driven, and passionate individual with great aspirations in life, future totally planned out, and ready to take on the world. I, on the other hand, was quite the opposite. I was never focused in school, as I was far too busy playing video games and going to the arcade every weekend, instead of doing my homework or working on any long-term projects. I graduated high school with subpar grades and a bad transcript meaning that my opportunities for college were very limited. 
I desperately wanted to take a gap year to get away from the stresses of school and my parents. You can imagine how disapproving they must have been to hear that. However, my plans to take a year off were shortly interrupted by a family trip to see some distant relatives which I was required to go on. My aunt and uncle owned a ranch just a few miles west of Salt Lake City, Utah. The ranch was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. We had to drive about an hour and a half off the main road onto some old dirt road to actually get there. The surrounding land was for the most part relatively flat, with a few small ravines and hills here and there. Otherwise, you can see for miles, especially on a sunny day. The ground was all red sand, with a few small patches of grass, bushes, and tumbleweeds. It was really dry out there, so there weren't any tall trees like in Maryland or Vermont. The ranch itself set upon a small hill with a dirt driveway out in front that led to a parking lot off to the side. There wasn't a garage, so that's how they made do. After dinner that night, we all went into the living room to play some games on the Xbox. Like me, James was really into video games, so he had quite the collection of games we could play. Our aunt was very strict on TV hours, so we had to turn off the video games at 9 o'clock every night. In addition, we had a curfew where we had to be inside at 8 o'clock before dark. That night it began to rain hard, so we didn't even want to go outside that day anyway. The day after, our uncle and father took the boys out shooting while the girls stayed home. My father had brought his AR-15 and Glock, for us to practice with on this occasion. Jeremy and my father, of course, with military training, were nailing every target they shot at. They taught me to shoot a few times, so I wasn't too rusty. After a long day of that, and driving around in my uncle's jeep, we made our way back to the ranch for supper. When we finished, as usual, we all went into the living room to play on the Xbox before bedtime. Our favorite game back then was Mortal Kombat 10, which I was particularly good at, as I had so much more experience playing it at home and at the arcade. At about nine that night, my brother Jeremy went upstairs to go to bed, while the rest of us stayed downstairs. Ah, crap, Henry exclaimed. What's wrong? I asked. I just realized I forgot the ammunition bag at the shooting range, he answered. That's all right, dude. We can go down and get it tomorrow. I replied. No, we can't, he said. If we leave it out overnight, it's going to get stolen or rummaged through by some animal. I was supposed to bring it back after we went shooting today. If Dad finds out, he's gonna flip. That stuff is expensive. Well, we're not allowed to go outside past eight, I replied. Ah, it'll be quick, no longer than ten minutes, he insisted. Trust me, it'll be fine. We'll bring some flashlights, and if it makes you feel better, I'll bring the hunting rifle. Reluctantly, I relented. Fine, I said. Sweet. Ten minutes, and if we can't find it, we'll just have to get it in the morning. James and I went to our rooms to get a pair of flashlights, while Henry went to get my uncle's hunting rifle and a few rounds, just in case a mountain lion or something got too close. We met up just outside the front door with our equipment, along with some jackets, 
as it could get really cold out here at night. The shooting range really wasn't that far away, maybe a five-minute drive there and back on my uncle's jeep. But since we couldn't make too much noise, it wasn't an option to drive, so we had to walk. As we got closer to the shooting range, Henry took us on a shortcut through a long, rocky ravine that would get us there about a minute earlier. It was filled with a multitude of jagged rocks that came out of the ground at funny angles, so I had to be extra careful as to not twist my ankle. Some rocks stood about eight feet in the air like an arrowhead coming out of the ground, so we couldn't see exactly what was on the other side of the ravine. Luckily, though, Henry had been through this path many times, so he knew it well. As we made our way carefully down the ravine, I couldn't help but notice a foul stench in the air. Ah, dude, smells like dead animal over here. I covered my nose, shining the flashlight around with my other hand. That's when we came across a deer carcass lying next to a tall rock about ten yards to the left. I took quick notice to the claw marks on its sides, which I figured must have been the cause of death, of course. Probably a mountain lion or a pack of coyotes, if I had to guess. Upon closer examination, I noticed that the claw marks had some precision to them, the cuts seemingly made slowly over the most efficient areas to make the kill. It was suspicious, to say the least, but we needed to keep going if we were going to make it back to the house before anyone noticed we were gone. The shooting range wasn't quite what you'd expect to see, there weren't any round paper targets set up anywhere, other than a few beaten-up tin cans we had brought from the ranch. There were no designated boxes or lanes, just a wide-open field with some dirt mounds behind the tin cans, to prevent any rounds from going past the targets and going stray. Henry walked over to the other side where he'd left the bag, and thankfully it was right there. All right, we got it. Let's get going before anyone knows we're gone, I said. As we got back on the path to the house, we went through that rocky ravine again. But something was different. That god-awful smell of rotting and decomposing flesh was more noticeable and more agonizing to pay attention to than before. It was several times stronger than it had been. I plugged my nose again, but I swear I could taste it. I figured it must have been that deer carcass, but as we walked through the area again, there were now six or seven more of them. I was stunned, and so was Henry. Each of them looked fresh, as if they were only a few minutes old. Whatever was responsible for this was obviously quick and deadly efficient in dealing with its prey. It had only taken us three minutes to get through the ravine and get the ammo back, and in that time, at the very least, it had dragged a half a dozen more of these deer into its little mound of death, and we never even heard it. I'm coming, Mom. We suddenly heard James say, Man, what are you talking about? Henry asked. My mom. She's calling out to me. James explained. Looking in a random direction, probably where he thought he heard this voice. Dude, there's no one there. We haven't heard anything, I said. Don't be silly. She says she's got breakfast ready, James smiled. 
He looked hypnotized. I had no idea what was going on with them. I certainly hadn't heard my aunt's voice, his mom's. And Henry shook his head when I looked at him, implying that he hadn't heard it either. I grabbed James by the shoulder and shook him. James, your mom's not out here. Breakfast isn't for another twelve hours or so. His expression immediately changed. He seemed scared now. You're right, he said. I don't know what came over me. Immediately, there was a snap from a nearby boulder. Henry loaded and cocked the rifle, pointing it to where the sound came from. The boulder was about eight feet tall, so we couldn't see behind it. As curious as I was to find out who or what it was, part of me, out of sheer terror, didn't want to know. Personally, I did not want to be added to the mound of carcasses here. But as I tried to continue down the path back home, there was a shrill cry, and we all froze. And while I was afraid, I wasn't petrified, not from the fear. I literally could not will myself to move, as if some external force had been applied to my whole being. I knew deep down, whatever that thing was, it was watching us that very moment. All my senses went into overdrive. I could hear everything, Henry and James's breathing. The stench of rot became ten times worse. But I could smell another foul odor, one that belonged to something still alive, and it was coming from beyond the boulder. Then it showed itself to us, stepping out from behind the rocks to reveal itself, and all at once... We all unfroze, but now I was truly petrified. I actually thought it was another deer, injured or maimed from the thing that had been hunting these. But then I noticed its movement was deliberate. It wasn't injured at all, and it wasn't a deer either. Deer don't have sharp teeth to tear through meat with. This thing certainly did. Its snout resembled a coyote's rather than a deer's. Yet it had antlers like one. Its legs were long and muscular, and it was covered with brown, patchy fur. Its front legs ended in a weird and creepy mix between hands, claws, and hooves. It's hard to explain, but they looked deadly. All of a sudden, Henry yelled like a madman from behind me as he fired around into the creature's abdomen. But the thing didn't even flinch, as if it had no way to sense pain. We all broke into a run, but I heard Henry fire one more time, then suddenly scream out. Help! Don't leave me here! But I just kept going. James and I made it back to the house, locking every door and window we could find. Henry hadn't come back yet but I kept a close eye out for him through the windows. It wasn't long before I crumpled to the floor with a feeling of guilt for leaving him out there. But when he came banging at the door, I let him in in a heartbeat. He looked disappointed and horrified, and he had a cut on his shoulder. He didn't talk. Together, we simply hid under the window sills and prayed that the thing had not followed us. 
We made it through the night without any more trouble, but Henry didn't talk for the rest of our stay there. I don't think he's ever forgiven me. Wendigo in the Mountains From Mothra These encounters took place in the southeast of Pennsylvania, near the town of Saltillo and Three Springs, mostly unknown towns up in the mountains. The first story came in the year of 2007, when I was 15. It was the summertime. I was with my two little brothers, who were five and seven at the time. We were having a small campout slash sleepover at our family friend's trailer with their three kids, Harley, Casey, and Billy. The weekend was fun as we country brats had fun riding on three-wheelers, going swimming, watching movies, and of course, camping outside. We separated the tents by gender. On the last night of our camping weekend, we were all heading to bed. The night was cold, even in the summer, because of the mountain air, but inside the tents were quite warm, thanks to sleeping bags and body heat. As everyone was heading off to go to sleep, the moment my head hit the pillow, all of us heard a woman's scream. All of us older kids rose up from our bags and opened the tents to look at each other, asking if we'd heard that. I asked if it could have been a mountain lion. Up here in Pennsylvania, you get them rarely, and I've heard their cries can sound like women. At the very least, maybe it was an owl. Our group was confused and a bit creeped out. We decided to stay up and sit quietly, waiting for any other sounds. After a long time of silence, I suggested that we should go back to the trailer to be safe. But Billy, the oldest one of our group, said we should stay put. But then another scream came, and everyone agreed that we should go back to the trailer. While we made a hesitant and long walk back, we kept our eyes on the wheat field where the sound had come from. This wheat field is quite huge, at least a half a mile long. That's pretty big in my opinion. The only source of light we had was the moon above us, but it was plenty for us to see a tall black figure smack in the middle of that wheat field. A figure too tall to be a normal person. It was all frail too, like a way too tall stick figure come to life. Regardless of what that thing was, we knew we had to make it back to the trailer. As we left, I scooped up one of the kids in my arms, the youngest, and I carried them all the way back to the trailer. Luckily, we made it there without a problem. Once inside, we tried to calm ourselves down by turning on the TV, but the screaming continued on and on. That thing in the middle of the field just wouldn't shut up. By morning, none of us had really slept. Casey and Billy's parents came home along with our parents, and we each told our separate family our story, yet not a one put any weight into it. Back then, I didn't know what that thing was that we saw. But later on, I would come to think of it as the Wendigo. I'd heard stories before, and I'd seen some pictures online, and it made sense even if it was a mythical creature. Years later in 2019, I unfortunately heard it again, 
It was a Saturday night, and I was walking my dog Baker in my old hometown, as the poor thing had to use the bathroom. This was normal for me, and comforting, as I knew the town of Saltillo like the back of my hand. I walked him down the village's post office. Suddenly, the old World War II air siren went off, which we used as our fire alarm to alert the town of fire. The usual sound of silence of animals besides the crickets hung in the air, as the sound of the faraway siren soon died away. It didn't fail to make my skin crawl, and that's because the sound had not come from the fire alarm. Instead, it came from the opposite direction, in the middle of the woods. Whatever made that sound was simply mimicking the siren it had heard before. My gut told me to get away from the area as fast as possible, and to get back home. There's a Wendigo in southeast Pennsylvania, and if you're out there, I would get out as soon as possible. Elephant Abomination from T. John Day to One. You can call me Sit Natua. Ever since I was young, I've always been a bit lonesome, a bit of a strange kid, always been afraid of the dark, too. At the age of six, when my mother started abusing both me and my brother, these quirks of mine began to manifest. I remember being scared every night in my old room because not only was it an utterly eerie place with a cold vibe to it, but I was always afraid my mom could get mad again at any moment. One night I happened to ask my mom to keep the lights on in the room when we went to bed. She said no, so I sat there in an uncomfortable position in my bed with my little brother beside me. We shared the same bed, which I hated because he peed the bed every night. I glanced at the closet door one night, trying to go to sleep, when I saw the closet door slowly opening. I remember being awake, completely lucid. I thought I was going to soil myself. I was so scared. I tried waking up my brother by shaking him and calling his name, but he wouldn't budge, and I was too scared to be too loud because of what might lie within the closet. I didn't want to take my attention off the door. So I got up, and I began to walk closer to the closet. Funny that I wasn't brave enough to shout, but I was brave enough to get up and see what was going on and to close the door. But when I came within a meter of the closet, I could see what was inside, and there I saw the most horrifying, nonsensical creature I could have ever imagined. It was a demonic-looking thing that resembled an elephant. When it growled and glared at me, I thought my heart was going to stop right there. The thing was huge, like Dumbo on steroids, barely fitting into the closet. It had multiple trunks, too, that vibrated as it growled. I screamed so loud, I swear I could have woke the heavens. I slammed the door and ran right to my mother's room to wake her up and to tell her, but I was so terrified that I could only stutter every word. Instead, I simply led her to the door. I opened it, and of course, the creature had disappeared. My mom was pissed. I woke her up in the middle of the night when she had work in the morning. 
Luckily, she was just tired and simply told me to get back in bed. I did. All the while, my little brother was confused as my scream had awakened him. Under the covers, I was shaking and I stared at the closet, just waiting for it to open again. Ever since this incident, I've always been afraid of leaving my closet door open even a little bit at night, and when I'm alone, I'll avoid it as much as possible. Totally Outstanding Capre Experience From Steve Knows My name is Steve, and I live in the Philippines. If you don't know anything about my country, well, that's okay. To give you some background, the Philippines is an archipelagic country located in Southeast Asia, just below Taiwan and immediately above Indonesia. Our country was once a massively forest-covered land until we were colonized and industrialized by Spaniards, later by the Japanese and then finally by the Americans. Although we do have our own share of ghost stories, Monsters are more common here, as the Filipino people had a lot of tribal societies before our colonizers came. One of these commonly known monsters from our folk legends is the Capre. A Capre is a huge man-like hairy giant that usually hangs out on equally large trees. They like to smoke, and although not entirely evil, they're really mischievous. They have the power to confuse people, and one of their favorite hobbies is to get people lost in the forests. Well, the folk legends say forests, but I don't know if that's still true anymore. How do I know? Well, I might just have encountered a capre yesterday in the city. My condominium is in the middle of the bustling city of Manila, the Philippines' completely crowded capital. It's an old rickety building, and the paint on some of the outside walls is already peeling away due to age. I'm surprised it even has a working elevator. It's convenient, though, because it's beside my school, and the rent is quite cheap, even though I live alone. It's not too bad, actually, if you can look past its obvious age. Before yesterday, I already encountered a few weird events. Not scary, but certainly odd. Here are some of them. The Condominium Association has a rule to turn off the elevators after midnight, so if you want to go out, you'll have to use the stairs. I never had problems going down. It's when I go up that some odd things happen. One early morning, 30 minutes past 4 a.m., I was going up to the fifth floor after blazing up with a friend just outside the building when I curiously landed on the third floor again. I scratched my head, wondering if I was just hallucinating. A few days later, at around the same time, I ended up walking up straight to the seventh floor. I mean, I guess skipping a couple of floors is fine, but it is irritating, if something really is just teleporting me around. My unit is adjacent to an unoccupied unit, if I look out my window, I can see the window and the room of the other unit, as my unit and the other basically form an L shape. I hope that makes sense. Well, every 2 a.m., and for exactly 15 minutes after that, the lights of the other unit would turn on. I know there might be a simple reason for it, 
but I don't know what it is. I never asked our landlord about it, and as far as I know, the security guards never leave their posts down the lobby. And I never ever watched the room at exactly 2 a.m. I'm afraid that if I stared at the unit's dark room, once its lights turn on, someone or something might be looking back at me. So no, screw that. Another weird thing is I always smell, well, weed smoke when I go out the fire exit to throw away my trash. Sure, of course, some tenants might be using the narrow staircase to get lit, but I've never encountered anyone having a smoke session out there. I wouldn't even dare to smoke weed there because there's a CCTV camera pointing straight at the fire exit door. Well, now let's go to my feature story, to what happened yesterday. It was 11 minutes past 3 a.m. and I was studying as usual. If you're wondering why I'm still awake around these times, it's because I study from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. I would smoke at exactly 4.20 a.m. and sleep from 5 to 12. So yeah, it was just past 3, when I heard someone crying outside. I ignored it, until the crying became louder. I got up and used the peephole on my door to check it out, to see what was happening in the hallway. To my surprise, the lights outside just turned off. I immediately picked up the phone on the wall and rang up the lobby. The security guard answered it. He said, What's up? I replied, Hey man, can you turn on the lights up here, on the fifth floor? Are they off? Yeah, they're off. Uh, no it's not. Yeah, it is. It can't be off. I'm checking the CCTV now. It's on. What? Are you sure there's nothing wrong with your CCTV? Because I'm sure it's off. I I'm looking at it. Hold on. I'll send up Jake. Jake is the other security guard. And as soon as Bob, the security guard I just talked to, hung up, I went back to my table and kept studying. The crying had stopped. It might be when I was wondering about the lights or when I called Bob. I don't exactly remember when. After a few minutes, the phone rang. I picked it up, and it was Bob again. Hey, the lights are on. I went over and looked through the peephole. No, they're still off out there. Can't be. I'm looking at Jake right now on the fifth floor. He's waving at the camera. The CCTV's working just fine. What in the world? I know this is weird, but... Bob must have sensed something in my voice. Right on it. Hey, Jake, can you knock on 504? Yeah, Steve's unit. Um, Steve? Yeah, he's knocking on your door now. I was soon horrified. Bob? I, I don't hear anything. What the... The line suddenly got cut off. Do you know the feeling of utter hopelessness? Well, that's what I was feeling right then and there. It felt really weird. But in retrospect, I never ever realized how silent everything was. Although it was past 3 a.m., I usually still hear vehicles and other city sounds outside. I didn't hear anything then, except my heart pounding. I didn't know what to do. I wondered, should I open the door? I didn't believe Bob was joking. 
Why would he joke about freaking lights like this? About something so benign? And at 3 a.m. in the morning, no less. I didn't open the door. Instead, I returned to my seat. That's when everything turned into a crap storm. It's like someone dialed up the weirdness to the maximum level, out of nowhere. The first thing I noticed that was very wrong was the book on the table before me. It was a different book entirely. I had been studying something else and this book was a different book. I mean, I do own this book. It's not like something else materialized out of thin air or something. But I'm pretty sure I was studying material strength before all this crap happened, not advanced calculus. If you're thinking about that movie 1408 right now, perfect. Because that's what it reminded me of. I heard sounds in the unit adjacent to mine, and although some of you might want to check it out, I didn't. No freaking way, man. I do remember what the sounds were, though. It sounded like a party. There were glasses clinking together, sheets ruffling, a TV on, some shuffling of busy feet, and there were no human voices, no telltale signs of anything decipherable. I think I got the word boondok from the TV, though, but it's probably just my mind messing with me. Boondok means mountain in English. I turned my attention away from the other unit at that point, because something weird was then happening in my room. Everything seemed to shrink and expand like I was looking at everything from inside a quickly inflating and deflating balloon. I was just about to run out and open the door when something pinned my foot to the floor. I can't exactly explain this part. It's like there were hands pulling my feet down on the floor. I was stuck. I was getting nauseous that time like my head was going to explode. I couldn't scream or make any sound at all. I was scared to death. All I could do at the time was try to pull myself up from this force on my legs, but it wouldn't budge. While all of these things were happening, I happened to get a whiff of weed again. That dank, pungent smell. I was about to smile, but panic took over. I don't exactly know the reason why, but I remembered my Lolo, Filipino word for grandfather, telling me stories about the Capre and its giant cigarette. The explanation of Capre made huge sense to me that moment, like everything seemed to make sense then. I stopped struggling and did what a Filipino kid was told to do when they get lost in the woods. I took off my shirt and turned it inside out and put it on again. The sounds suddenly stopped, and the room slowly returned back to normal. Most of all, I was able to walk again. I felt so relieved. Nothing more happened that morning. When I asked Bob what happened earlier... He told me that right after our conversation on the phone got cut off, I just opened the door and talked to Jake. I don't remember ever speaking to him that night, and as I recall, there was no gap in my memory, and he was looking at me strangely, so I privately asked Jake for more information. He acted surprised and told me that after I opened the door, I just grinned at him, told him something in Spanish, something like, Hola, Vato, and then closed the door again. It was totally insane. 
And that, I think, was the end of it. I saw it in the snow from Masai Riot. We Dutch aren't really known for our folklore. Now we have the white winches, or Vita Viven, and goblins, but also things like gnomes and dwarves. This creature, however, is known as Floder here in Holland. It is a creature that lives in all sorts of streams and jumps on your back, making you feel as if there is a literal ton of weight on your back. But when you reach civilization, it is said to jump off your back and into the nearest bit of water it can find. How it looks, though, is never really told, but I believe I've seen it. It was a cold Friday, and after work I always go to my parents to eat and spend time with my parents and sister. This is something that we just kept doing from when I lived in an apartment, because back then I didn't have my own washing machine, and I would take my clothes to their place to wash. Every Friday I do a bit of grocery shopping as well, and when I get back I need to cross a path that goes along a stream that even goes past my house that I live in now. As always, my messenger bag was filled with groceries. The snow cracked as I walked on it. I suddenly heard something in the water. The water wasn't frozen solid, but still there were no ducks, geese, or any birds in the water for that matter that could have made that sound. Sure, I was in civilization, but during the virus lockdown, a lot of creatures have ventured outside their normal habitat, since there aren't so many human interactions during a lockdown. The curfew was also still in full force, so I had to be home before nine. I noticed my bag was feeling really heavy all of a sudden, but when I swung it toward my front, all the weight seemed to be gone. Then I heard water splashing yet again, but no ripples could be seen in the nearby water. As the night went on, I could hear some sounds in the front of my house, but it was already near eleven so only crazy people would be out risking a huge fine at that hour. I went to my kitchen that has a window that looks out into the playground across the stream, and I could see something getting out of the water. It looked sleek, wet, and about a meter tall. Then it turned towards me and noticed I was looking at it, so it dove right back into the water. It went quiet after that, so I went to bed, but at around 12.30 I woke up. I was wide awake then, so I decided to head to the bathroom. When I was done in the bathroom, I heard some footsteps. Since I was already so awake, I decided to open the bedroom curtains and window. I took my phone and took a picture of the beautiful landscape. The contrast of the lights at night against the window just looked so majestic. There were a few weird noises that were near my front door, though. I have a setup where I grow my Moroccan mint plant for fresh mint tea, which my sister and mom love a lot, at the left side of my front door. As I leaned over into the opened window, I saw that creature was now gnawing on my Moroccan mint, but before I could get my phone ready to take another picture, it noticed me. It looked me straight in the eyes and began to hiss loudly. Then it ran back to the stream, giving me one last glance as I closed the window. The morning after, 
I found my Moroccan mint plant with marks. It looked like it had been cut with thousands of razors. I've shown people this picture, and many say they see something on the edge of the water, but personally I can't see anything out of the ordinary. Then again, I've always been terrible at finding things out of ordinary pictures, so maybe you'll see what I don't. The Skinwalker That Lurks in the Dark From Hinata 03 This is my little sister's story. It will be told from her perspective. It began around August 24th, the day before school started. At the time, I hung with this girl who lived next door to me. Let's call her Karen. The two of us hung out all day and most of that night. We went swimming in her pool and went out for dinner. Had a picnic in her backyard. The list goes on. Well, later that night, I kept checking in with my mom and dad so that they knew I was safe and that nothing was wrong. It was around 7.30 p.m. by then when Karen and I decided to eat dinner and watch a movie. We went inside and did just that. After dinner and the movie was over, it was around 9 p.m., Karen and I decided then to go play in her trampoline. At 9.30 p.m., my father comes over to my friend's house, telling me that I need to come home in about 15 minutes. Then my dad walks back over to our house. Now, right behind Karen's and my house, there is this forest. We knew those woods like the backs of our hands. Anyway, with the remainder of our time, we decided to play in that forest. When it was finally time for me to go home... Karen and I decided to cut through the bushes. Suddenly, I heard my father's voice calling my name, telling me to come here. Naturally, I began to head towards the voice, thinking it was my father's. The closer I got to the voice, the more I realized it didn't sound right. Soon enough, I found what was calling me, and it didn't look like my father at all. What I saw looked to be over fifteen feet tall, lanky, with glowing eyes, skinny as a starved rat. I stood there. I was too afraid to move, and I couldn't look away. It looked right at me, then screamed. It began to walk towards me. I must have snapped out of it, because then Karen and I took off. In tears, we made it to my house. But we couldn't immediately find my father. I grew worried until I asked my mom where he was. She said he was in the bathroom. She noticed the state we were in and wanted to know if we were okay. Karen and I had to tell her everything was fine, as we didn't want my mom to panic. When my father came out of the bathroom, we told only my father what we saw. He grabbed a shotgun and a flashlight and went into the woods to see if he could find what we were talking about. He was gone for a while. When he came back, he said he didn't see what we saw, but he did find footprints that were as big as snowshoes. Whatever it was, he said it was not any normal footprint, and not from a typical animal around these parts. I don't know what my friend and I saw that night. I know that I never want to see that thing again. All I can say is be careful at night, because there are things lurking in the dark, and some of them know how to mimic the voices of your loved ones.
Hellhounds in Regina From Timid Deer I live in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. This story takes place in the winter of 2016 to 2017. It was either December or January. I was 17 at the time. It was extremely early in the morning, almost 3 o'clock. I woke up suddenly to the sound of all the dogs in the neighborhood going insane. I tried to go back to sleep because it was a school night, but I felt a feeling of unease and I suddenly felt unsafe. I sat up in my bed and quietly went to the window and opened it. I heard howling. It kind of sounded like coyotes, but not so much. This was strange, of course. You don't usually hear or see wild animals that far into the city. At least, not too often. Even so, I knew that it wasn't really a coyote, or even a wolf. It sounded kind of unnatural. I opened the curtains just enough to look outside, but not open enough for someone or something to look in. At the time, I didn't really understand yet that that wasn't how it worked. What I saw that night, I didn't realize until this year how lucky I really was. I saw these two large dogs run into the parking lot across the street. They stopped. These were not ordinary dogs. To best describe how they looked, take Sirius Black's animagus form, but make them the size of a Mountie's horse. They also had these glowing golden eyes. My eyes met with one of them. We stared at each other for a few seconds. Before I knew it, the dog turned its head to face the other. They then ran off into the night. I never really thought much of it until this year, 2021. I learned this year that I more than likely saw hellhounds, and based off of everything I've read, I'm lucky to still be alive. I honestly never thought I'd encounter something like that in North America, but now I know anything is possible in the modern era. Old Man in the Sierra Mountains From Anonymous I recently took up the hobby of traveling and looking for various minerals with my fiancé. On a trip we recently took, we ended up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The particular spot we wanted to reach was at the end of an eight-mile hike. Some points of this path are so steep that it took us almost half an hour to make even twenty feet of progress. This background information is important, because on this particular trip, my parents decided to come along as a sort of bonding experience. And upon seeing how steep the trail was, they stayed behind at the car and decided to wait for us to get back. I thank God that they waited for us. Anyway, my fiancé and I are about halfway up the mountain in this desert environment, and it was beginning to get dark really fast. We're always careful to check the weather, temperatures, sunsets, legal zones, etc. So this struck us as odd, but we pushed forward. Eventually, we reached a point in the path that we decided to take a break, and my fiancé stops talking suddenly, mid-sentence. I look up to meet her gaze, and the look in her eyes instantly told me something was not right. I looked in the direction she was staring, and there, maybe one hundred yards away in the middle of the mountains, 
was what looked to be an old man. He was dressed in what appeared to be a dark robe or some type of black raggedy clothing. We could only tell it was an old man based on how this person was standing with a frail frame. Soon after, I realized what I was looking at. This person wasn't moving. They had simply stopped mid-step, walking up the mountain parallel to us. I don't know why, but my stomach dropped so fast that I felt lightheaded. I normally deal with weird or intense situations fairly well, but this guy or thing, it made my body react weird to its presence. It seemed as if it had noticed us staring at it, because soon it reacted. I was terrified to see that what first looked like an old man began to stand up. I failed to notice that it was on its knees that whole time, or hunched over, and in its thin, frail frame, it began to loom what seemed like over six and a half to seven feet tall. I could tell by the trees it was next to, which we had passed previously. This was no old man. It was so thin, yet so eerily tall. A moment later, my shock and awe was interrupted by the sound of a four-wheeled vehicle. I turned to see a jeep coming down the mountain slowly towards us, with its headlights on. In my unbroken gaze, staring at this creature, I failed to see that it had apparently gotten pitch black in what felt like only moments of me studying this thing. The people in the jeep stopped, and they offered us a ride. Before I answered, I looked back at the creature, only to see it sprinting back down the mountain, into the wilderness, at an ungodly and unnatural speed. That was definitely no old man. Skip ahead to me and my fiancé in the jeep. We had simply jumped in the bed of the nice couple's open-style jeep, and the man looked back to me and said in a gruff voice, You shouldn't be out here past dark. Weird things happen in the desert when the sun sets. My fiancé looks at me with a worried expression on her face, but I knew the man must have seen the creature too, so I felt as if he was referring to this man, or creature. Whatever it was, it caused me to lose time not even noticing the sun setting at such an alarming rate. It almost made me pass out from simply feeling its presence. I don't know what it was. I've heard stories in the area and rumors of dogs going missing, people going missing too, but I don't know what I saw. But I do know that there's definitely something unnatural in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Possible vampire. His eyes. From Moo Bloom. Do you ever lie in the dark, but you think you see something that shouldn't be there? That's what happened to me when I moved into my new house just over ten years ago. Though I swear, what I saw was more than just my eyes playing tricks on me. I had just turned five, and my parents had bought my family a new home. It was a nice townhouse that couldn't have been more than ten years old. The house was very welcoming and warm, but the room that was going to be my room had a different energy than the rest of the house. The air always felt thicker in there. 
We were living with our grandma before, so it was a bit weird to not have her around all the time. She was a very comforting person to me and made me feel safe. Once we moved in, I warmed up to my new house quickly. I was very excited by the change in atmosphere. In my room, I had a bunk bed that made the room feel a lot bigger than it actually was, but I will admit it did and always has freaked me out a bit. Since my parents are super religious, I wasn't taught to believe in ghosts, demons, and the paranormal. So even though I was scared, I never thought that anything bad could happen. One night, as I was lying in bed, like every other night for the previous month or two, I saw this dark figure slowly appear by the ladder that led up to my bed. It seemed to move slightly, but I didn't think much of it and brushed it off as my eyes playing tricks on me because of how tired I was. I slowly shut my eyes and tried to ignore the discomfort of seeing whatever I saw. After a long minute, I opened them to see a shadowed figure with long, slim arms and huge hands slowly making its way up to my bed, and had a slim chest that outlined its ribs perfectly. I was frozen in fear, but I did have the courage in me to slowly move to the corner of my bed in an attempt to get away from the creature, but it continued to move closer and closer to me. It stopped moving suddenly, its huge hands gripping into the wood around my bed to prevent me from falling. I heard a faint breathing from what could only be its head. There was a long pause between each breath, which made time feel like it was slowing down. I tried to speak, but the only noise that came out of my mouth was a quiet mumble. I forced myself to blink, since I had forgotten to, and as soon as I opened my eyes, the shadow had a pair of its own. Its eyes were deep mustard, and his pupils were shrunken. He seemed to stare at me for what felt like the longest minutes of my life. The slow breath steadily turned into more of a soft growl as I felt my body go cold. Eventually I found the strength to scream to get someone, anyone's, attention. Then my mom came running into my room, and as the door opened, the monster quickly turned to look at the door, then melted away into the darkness of my room. Seeing the light come through the door was the most relieving feeling, and I ended up sleeping in my parents' room for the night. I will never forget the eyes that stared so deeply into my soul. Warning. The following story contains graphic depictions of dead animals. What I experienced on the Colorado back road. From Make 33. This story took place a few months back. I was 17 at the time. During the Rona outbreak, I was very limited to where I could and could not go. Although there were strict rules set in place by my parents, I seldom acknowledged what they asked of me to begin with. Looking back, I realized how irresponsible I was, and I chalk it up to my immaturity. Since I've turned 18, I've made the best effort to put my childlike tendencies behind me and start behaving like a mature young adult. Regardless, this story took place a while before I turned 18. Though the incident happened a few months back, it continues to replay in my head and appears as fresh as ever to this day. I don't think I'll ever completely know what happened that night. 
Beginning my story, it was around one in the morning. Just like the rest of the states, Colorado was dealing with Rona, and no one was really allowed to mingle with others at this point in time. Regardless, I really didn't have anyone to mingle with. I was homeschooled, after all, living in an isolated spot. I wouldn't have it any other way, either. I enjoy spending time alone, contemplating life and its meaning. I have a close group of friends I've remained in contact with throughout Rona, and those are the friends that have been with me for a long time. I consider them family. I missed the amount of time we'd spend together, as a group and individually. I especially recall our love of hiking and exploration, the sense that there is stuff out there, good and bad. We all felt like it was our job to find it, record it, and remember it. At one point in life, the memories you keep will once again remind you of the golden days of your life. We figured it might be best to get as many memories and experiences as possible. But I never anticipated something as bizarre as this to happen. Additionally, although my friends weren't with me because of the lockdowns, I've made sure they were fully aware of every specific detail as to what happened. I was extremely bored during these times and resorted to taking my mind off of boredom by going for drives. I would usually spend two to three hours a day driving around aimlessly, exploring back roads and stopping every so often on trails to hike. Eventually, I discovered the exhilaration of sneaking out at night to go for a drive. I realized night drives, while being the perfect way to relax and think about life, also had the potential adrenaline rush to them. The idea of sneaking out without your parents finding out, I guess. Until this one night drive. I never realized how incredibly dangerous they could be. I would sometimes see deer jump into the road and that would scare me crapless. The way they could take anyone by surprise is crazy. The way your heart beats when it comes out of nowhere. The imminent feeling of uncertainty to what it actually is before you completely analyze it. And the dread that follows. It makes you go ten times slower in fear that you'll accidentally hit a deer and total your car. It was no issue to me, though. My car was pretty old and given to me by my parents. I didn't think much of it then, but that car was on its last legs. Since then, I've bought a new car to avoid the same problem that occurred that night. Sometime after my parents had gone to bed, I got up. I left through the back door and got into my car. Tonight was like any other night. Completely normal. Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to experience. I got onto a recently discovered back road I found a few days back. It took me about 30 minutes to get there and I made sure to fill up my gas tank so I would have no difficulty getting back home without a problem. I eventually came to a long stretch of road that was densely forested on either side of the road. I felt so at peace, knowing that no other cars usually traveled this way due to the lack of any evident road maintenance. No houses or trails were on this couple-mile stretch, which was just fine. Being one with the silent night, the sound of crickets with the fresh air coming from my open window, and no light apart from the beams of my car, it was all very peaceful. 
I was cruising at a thirty-mile-an-hour pace to avoid any big bumps in the roads. A few minutes into keeping this pace, I glanced off to the left side of the road, and I saw a faint outline of some sort of figure. I brushed it off as being some animal, and drove to about forty miles an hour. I didn't feel quite right, though. Something kept bothering me, and I realized how far set its eyes had been off the ground. They had reflected my headlight beams at an almost impossible height to be the eyes of any animal I knew of. My stomach was in a knot, and out of curiosity I looked in the rearview mirror. Whatever it was had walked onto the road. I saw the faint outline of the figure, but I wasn't completely sure if it was four-legged or two. And that's when I heard it. The most unnatural sound I've ever heard in my life. The purest form of dread washed over me as I put two and two together. I connected the uncanny sound with the creature that had just made its way onto the road. The sound this creature made was a shriek. It made it multiple times and it was impossibly loud. My best attempt to describe it would be to compare it to the sound that metal makes when scraping against metal, except a thousand times more chilling. It was as if it wanted my attention. My heart began to pound. I slowed the car down to a halt. It stood there yards behind me, eyes reflecting the moon. As scared as I was, I became even more desperate in finding out what this thing was. It stood in the same position, eyes not moving. I sat there for a moment, waiting. It suddenly made the same shrieking noise, except even more aggressively this time. That's when I drove off. I redlined the car, and as I did, I dreaded the idea of my car breaking down. Thankfully, it didn't. However, as I began to drive off, whatever it was appeared to head back into the forest. After a few minutes of driving, I was intent on making it back to civilization. From what I remembered, I think I had another eight miles to go, give or take, before getting onto a main road. I was driving at fifty miles an hour now, and paid no attention to any bumps in the road. My sole focus was getting the heck out of Dodge. After a few minutes of driving, I heard the shriek again. Distant, but it sent a shiver down my spine nonetheless. I kept driving, and I began to approach something on the road. Whatever it was, it was in a heap. Then I saw it was a deer. At first, I thought it was dead. But then I realized it was twitching as I slowed down to avoid running it over. It was in the middle of the road, so I had to drive to the side. As my car approached it, I saw that its ribcage had been torn open and spread apart. Its innards spilled about on the road. This wasn't roadkill. Something had mauled it. As I drove onto the shoulder, I got caught in a ditch. For a split second, I thought I was screwed. Thankfully, my tires caught onto the pavement once again, 
and I was in the clear. Just a moment after getting past that deer, something ran onto the road. I'm not sure what it was, but I knew it was two-legged, based on the way it ran. I wasn't yet far enough away to be unable to distinguish how this creature looked. I got a glimpse of it in my mirror. It was a very tall, lanky figure. I saw its eyes wide open, yet there appeared to be no mouth. It shrieked once again. That's when its mouth opened. A hole of darkness emerged so big, I was stunned. It cocked its head back and went into a seizure-like motion. That's when I lost sight of it, unsure of what to even think at that moment. I made it back home around six in the morning. I drove a bit more among the common roads, just contemplating life and about what the heck I'd experienced. I drove there a day later during noon with my dad, not saying a word about the whole incident. I asked if he wanted to go for a drive and discuss family matters with me. I used that as an excuse to have company while I went to drive by the road where I saw the deer. We passed it, or at least what was left of it. The head was gone. The neck was ripped apart as we passed it, and I felt even more disturbed. My dad appeared to be seriously concerned, but chalked it up to some wild animal. I never told him or anyone else about what I saw that night. The day I drove that road with my dad at noon was the last time I went on it since. I've since then cut back on the driving I do during the day, and I've never gone out at night again. Thinking about what happened gives me goosebumps, and makes me tear up. Sometimes I question my own sanity. But that deer symbolizes the truth behind what the heck happened that night, and serves as a dreadful reminder of the reality of the situation, and of what could have happened to me if my car remained in that ditch, or had broken down. I count myself lucky, and I've started to realize that sometimes the bad overtakes the good. I don't want to be around when that happens, so I've taken every precaution since then to keep myself safe. I think we saw a skinwalker, from Mrs. Ponchy John. I'm 24 years old, and a big believer in monsters. I'm part Cherokee, Choctaw, Shawnee, and Chickasaw. My grandma always taught us about skinwalkers, shapeshifters, and wendigos. So last year I was on a trip to Denver, Colorado with my friends Joe, who's part Washoe and Lakota, and Frankie, who's part Cheyenne and Seminole, along with my dogs Lou, a red-bone coonhound, and Mr. Bluebody, a blue-tick coonhound. We finally get to Colorado after hours of driving. We're driving down a dirt road when my dogs needed to use the bathroom. Hey, Joe, pull over. Why? Lou and Mr. Bluebody have to water the lily. Joe pulled over and we all got out. While my dogs are using the bathroom, I feel as if we're being watched. Then my dogs start growling. We all look towards where my dogs are growling, and we see this pony looking at us. 
Yes, a pony. Now to a random person, it would appear to be a regular pony, and at first, that's what it looked like, until we saw that its legs were too long for a pony. I heard Frankie ask, Polna, do you see that? Yeah, I see it. I told my dogs to come, and we all got back in the car. As soon as I looked outside my window, I screamed. Standing in the spot where the pony had been was a tall, dark figure. We all said in unison, Skinwalker. We all began to pray while my dogs huddled together. After the prayer, what we heard next scared us so much. It mimicked my grandma's voice. We heard, Don't be scared. It's alright. Joe sped down the road faster than I ever saw him drive before. We decided to just go home, but we took a different highway out of Colorado. We haven't spoken of it since. I decided to share this story, and I'm thankful my grandma taught me about monsters. Stay safe, and God bless. Frozen in Fear From Sandy I live in New Mexico near the Colorado border, close to the San Juan Mountains, which is a part of the Rockies. I used to camp every year until seven years ago, in a place called Williams Creek, Pagosa Springs, Colorado. It's a beautiful area, with mountains, a lake, some waterfalls, hiking trails, and an old country store. I was recently divorced and wanted to get away from everything, and everyone, for a few days. So I packed my hiking gear, camping supplies, and a sidearm, which I always take with me as I'm a small female, and there are a lot of big animals in that area. Pagosa Springs is a small mountainous town with their claim to fame being the deepest hot springs in the world, and resorts that welcome locals, skiers, mountain bikers, vacationers, and anyone that likes the outdoors. It truly is an outdoorsy person's paradise. They host several events throughout the year. That includes car shows, hot air ballooning, and music festivals. The camping and hunting in the area is second to none. But then again, I'm a bit biased, having lived in this area since I was 14. I made sure to go in July, as the area is a bit warmer, and most of the snow is gone in the areas I like to hike to. I've hiked this area many times and have been to a lot of the trails that lead to fields of the most beautiful wildflowers you will ever lay eyes on. In the fall, the aspen trees splash the mountains with colors of gold, orange, and red in anticipation of the long, cold winters that Colorado is infamous for. It was truly my most favorite place to go and just chill out away from people, to just soak in the serenity. Williams Creek is both amazing and gorgeous, but anxiety-invoking if you do not like seclusion. The campground is almost always full, but the trails can be very desolate, especially the one that caused me to be here writing this story. I made camp and settled into my tent for the night. 
I had checked the weather several times before leaving Pagosa Springs proper. Cell service in Williams Creek can be spotty at best. I was planning on waking at 0400 and heading out to the top of Williams Creek, past the lake and onto Williams Creek Trail, which is about 15 miles long and takes a good part of the day to hike, if not two days, as weather often moves in very fast and traps hikers that have to seek shelter away from flash hailstorms, lightning, and local monsoons. Well, I ended up oversleeping and got a late start. Very late. I grabbed my gear in such a hurry that I forgot my camera and my phone, which sucked, because I was planning on taking a lot of pictures that day of the hike and scenery. It took me about 20 minutes to drive to the trailhead and sign in on a sheet provided by the Forestry Service. This helps locate hikers should they become missing. It has a place for your name and destination, as well as days anticipated for your hike and the time you got started. I signed in at 8.17 and started down the trail, across the field, towards the tree line. The hike is treacherous, even for the most seasoned hiker. The trail starts out innocently enough, but quickly turns into an almost vertical trail, with switchbacks and a lot of debris from horses and weather. A lot of folks take rented horses on the trail. I was excited to be out in nature, and needed to relax unwind. It took me about four hours to get to the bottom where there's two clearings separated by a thin group of pine trees and scrub oak. There's a small stream that runs through the trees that has some amazing fishing. As I made my way to the group of trees, I took note of a few clouds moving in and the wind picking up. I spent about two hours fishing, untangling my line, sorting through flies, and cleaning my catch. I made lunch right by the stream, and that's when I noticed I'd forgotten my camera and phone. A little disappointed in myself, I cleaned my supplies, packed up, and grabbed my pack, giving one last glance at the area, taking mental pictures for my journal. Then I left the serenity behind. One glance at my watch told me I better start heading back. As I made my way to the group of trees, I felt the first drop of rain hit my face. In seconds, it was a downpour of rain and hail. I grabbed my rain jacket and found shelter under a group of scrub oak. I sat in my shelter waiting for a small break in the rain, just enough so that I would not be pounded with hail and get soaked to the bone. But my wait was in vain. About 45 minutes into the storm, I had a sudden urge to get the heck out of there. Looking back, there was not one particular event that caused the feeling. I just felt the need to go. I grabbed my pack, zipped my jacket all the way up, and headed out of the trees into the valley. About halfway across the field, I felt horribly exposed, but I was happy to see the rain subsiding. I stopped to admire the view and check my watch again. Realizing it would be dark by the time I got back to my truck, I decided to pick up the pace. I reached for my pack and straight away noticed it was dead silent. No dripping rain, no animals, no crickets. 
dead silent. Throwing the pack over one shoulder, I picked up the pace and had just about made it to the bottom of the ascending part of the trail, when movement, out of the corner of my eye, caused me to stop. Coming towards me at full speed was a mountain lion. I froze. I wanted to run, but I knew better. In my hunting classes, they had told us to stand your ground and make as much noise as possible. I couldn't think. I couldn't run. All I could do was stand there and wait for my bloody end. The cat came within about forty yards from me before veering off to the right and heading towards the fence line that stretches across the base of the mountain. As the cat disappeared, I turned to resume my pace and stopped dead in my tracks again. I was thinking, what could have caused that cat to run like that? And it's a question I wished to this day I had never asked. As if on cue and reading my thoughts, just outside the tree line of the very group of trees I'd taken shelter under, was a creature that was about seven to seven and a half feet tall. It had the body of a man, the legs of a deer, and the face was a mess of teeth, hair, and grotesque wrinkled skin, the color of a rotting corpse. I froze where I stood. My feet felt as if they had been cemented to the earth, and I could not form one rational thought. I forgot I had a gun, but I couldn't even lift my arm to check the time. Several minutes had to pass because my next memory was the cat standing in the tree line, safely on the other side. It let out a scream that sounded like an animal being murdered. I snapped out of my trance and realized it was time to make haste. I dropped my pack and ran as fast as I could to clear the rest of that field. At the bottom of the mountain, there's a fence you must climb over to get to the trail. I jumped over the fence and kept on running, never looking back because I was so scared that thing would be right behind me. I was crying and screaming for help. About halfway up the mountain, and at dusk, I ran into four guys on horses that had just turned back to start toward their trucks. I told them that I'd gotten caught in the storm and had lost my pack. I didn't mention what I saw. I didn't want them to think I was crazy. Two of the men headed down the mountain, while the other two put me on a horse and took me to my truck. I wanted to tell them so badly what I'd seen, but I was scared that somehow my mind had made it up, and it didn't really happen. A couple of hours later, I was safe in my truck, and that's where I slept that night. As soon as dawn broke, I tore camp down, packed up, and met the guys at the little country store to retrieve my pack. As I thanked the men for going to get my pack, they stated that they nearly didn't make it there, because they kept hearing howling and noises in the bushes all the way down the mountain. Their horses had refused to go any further, and if they hadn't found my pack when they did, I would have lost it forever. I thanked them and got in my truck. As I was backing out of the dirt lot, one of the men approached the window and made a gesture to roll it down. I did as he asked. He told me that they'd seen some strange things on their ride to get my pack, and told me to never hike the area alone. I asked
asked him what they saw. He just shook his head and reiterated for me to never hike that trail alone. I miss that area, but what I saw that evening will haunt my dreams for the rest of my life. What in the world was that thing? What stopped it from pursuing me? How did the time lapse happen in that short amount of time? Did that cat protect me? How could I have gone there all those other times before and never seen it? And how am I still alive? Don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful. But I'd still like to know what I saw that night. Blacksmith's Encounter From Anonymous this story happened just the night before I wrote this down. January 10th, 2018. It was a Wednesday, and it happened in the Philippines. I arrived home from a 3D engineering office that is 45 minutes away from my house. I was excited to get home early, as I wanted to finish the bowie knife that I forged the previous weekend. I'm a bladesmith, by the way, and a huge fan of the paranormal. Hence, all my blades are named after different pop culture entities. When I arrived home, I quickly changed my clothes from office clothes to my blade smithing clothes. I saw my sister sitting in the dining room, and I asked her where our parents were. She replied that they hadn't arrived home yet, so I just moved on and go to my shop. My shop is located in our backyard, which is a hundred feet away from the rear end of the house. It gets really dark here at night, because we're surrounded by trees, and there's no light at all, except for my shop's light. Fast forward a bit. I decided to call it a night after I accidentally broke my blade's tip, and I immediately called the owner of the blade, telling them what happened. We both got upset, but I told him that I'll be forging a new one for him. He told me if he can see the blade, and this is where it all began. I returned to my shop still talking to him on the phone. I was holding the blade, and suddenly, I felt that someone was touching my back, slowly slithering their hand from the bottom of my neck down to my hip. I was terrified, but I managed to head to my room calmly, lying down on the bed, still talking to my client. I get this unusual sensation of being stalked as if someone is watching me from my bedroom window. And in the middle of our conversation, the call just went out. That was weird. I called him again, and after a few seconds, we got cut off again. Then I noticed that a portion of my bed looked compressed, as if someone had been sitting there. This creeps me out. But being used to this kind of stuff, I decided to go downstairs to get some beer in the fridge. And this is where everything got worse. As I went to my seven-step stairs, I noticed, from the corner of my eye, there was someone outside my living room window, staring at me. A shadow of a man, around seven feet tall, leaning on my window's frame. What was worse was that I could clearly see the light of a pole across the street through it. They were transparent. Chills crawled up my spine, 
And then, there it was again, the sensation of being touched on my back. I called up my other friend to brush things off. Before he answered, a voice called my name. My name that only few called me. But there was something off with the voice. It was kind of husky with a low, monotonous tone. He, or rather it, called me by the name Romjo. I'm pretty sure this wasn't my parents. They sleep around 9 p.m., and all this happened between 10.30 and 12. This wasn't my only encounter, though. Sometimes I woke up in the bewitching hours, with someone calling me by that name, or me waking up with something pulling my right foot off the bed. We have a friendly ghost in the house, but I'm pretty sure this wasn't her. Because every time that things like this will happen to me, she isn't around. And sometimes I can see things. I think I have a partial gift of discernment. Experience 1. Giggles from Sadriex I used to work for a motorcycle company in a countryside province of the Philippines. Unlike other places, my home island has only one city for now and that is where our main office is located. My job at the time was a field representative but I mostly handle the collection of monthly payments from our customers. Most of our customers live in various secluded areas near the shorelines, mountains, and vast forests. Hence, I was required to go to them to collect their payments. More often than not, they supposedly forget their monthly due date, so it's up to me to remind them. I'm only a five foot six tall guy, but I'm not skinny. Like my other co-workers and before joining the company, I was an avid mountain biker and hiker. Since I was raised in a very far-off farm with no electricity or motorized transportation, I can tell you why I had the sort of childhood I did, but in a different story. Because of my nature, the office always puts me in charge of going to the most mountainous areas covered by woods. I didn't really complain at first. All of these places that I had to go to were secluded to the point that even electricity is non-existent and people that live there as if they were in the Middle Ages. I start off early since I had to ride a motorcycle provided by the office as means of transportation. This motorcycle was clunky, old, and had more repairs than a World War II machine. But I trusted enough that I called it ox because no matter how hard or impassable the terrain was, it never let me down. But I do have to repair aux. While on the way, every now and then, but nothing major. My client for the day was a tribesman who worked in a mine and it always takes me two hours to get to the top of the mountain where his village is situated. The path is very hard and I was the only one who was able to get to the area. There were no houses along the way, just vast deep woods all around. You can hear the typical rainforest sounds every time, but this day was different. I stopped for a while and had my breakfast on the side of the road. Ox was parked on a grassy part while my food and hot coffee were placed on top of the gas tank and seat. While I took a sip of my hot drink, I heard what seemed to be giggling from behind me. I looked around, but saw nothing, so I ignored it, thinking it was a bird. But when I bit into my food, I heard it again. Something felt off, but because of the surroundings, 
everything seemed to fall silent, and I heard what sounded like giggling again, but closer and still from behind. I packed my stuff and unlocked the pen holding my knife. I know that I sound like a coward, but I had experiences with the paranormal since childhood, and some of them get physically dangerous. I relaxed a bit, trying to focus on where the sound was coming from. I know about this giggling sounds and it could be two things. One is that it's just a playful spirit teasing me, or it could be a bad one that follows you home so it can torment you for the rest of your life. My grandparents taught me that I need to be respectful towards such beings, but I should never show weakness nor fear. I pulled out my 14-inch blade and took a stance as if I'm ready to strike whatever will jump out of the woods. The ordeal lasted about five minutes. It was quiet, and I could hear my heartbeat and breathing. I spoke in a serious tone, saying, I am sorry that I disturbed you, but I am just resting, and I will be on my way now. It was still and silent, and after a few seconds, the normal forest sounds returned. The area felt somewhat normal again, and I said thank you, and went on my way. I reached the small village consisting of no more than 25 houses and saw my client. He offered me coffee and I received my payment, which was three months past due. While resting in bed, I recalled what happened. My client suddenly asked me if I didn't encounter any problems along the way. I told him that there were no problems, and then I asked why. He told me that one of the villagers had died recently and it was very sudden. He told me that one day that the villager had changed and acted odd, becoming paranoid for no reason. They had heard him shouting in the middle of the night and running away to God knows where. He went missing for days and was found dead under a tree. Their elder shaman said that the poor man was haunted by an evil spirit and it took his soul. The poor man was never a brave one to begin with and was really easily scared by anything. I thought about what my client had said and then I bid him farewell. I rode down the mountain and passed by the spot where I rested and had no other issues. I went home tired and dropped into my bed. I remembered the events that happened and I thought about that, about what I had encountered back there. Was it the same evil spirit? Did I have a standoff against it and prevail? I had no idea. But I know for sure that with my line of work, it will not be the last time that I will encounter such incidents. I pray your war has ended. From 19 Delta Scout Every time I return from a deployment, I don't stay home for very long. I stay home just long enough to drop off my gear, say my hellos to friends and family, then leave again for about a month. Usually I'll fly to Hanover, Germany, to blow off steam and decompress. Anyone who says that they have returned from serving in Iraq or Afghanistan, and claims they don't need to blow off steam and decompress, has never served in Iraq or Afghanistan. After my last tour of duty in Iraq, however, I decided to change things a bit. Instead of flying to Hanover, I decided to take a trip to my family's native country of the Philippines. I don't know why. 
I guess it was just something different to do. My mother's family comes from a place in the northern Philippine island of Luzon, called Baguio City. For those who have never been there, Baguio is a remarkable place. It's a city built high in the mountains, and only four roads lead to and from the sprawling city. Although during typhoon season, only two roads lead to and from the city, as the other two roads usually get washed out. Starting from sea level, it takes between 40 minutes to one hour to drive the narrow road that oftentimes doubles back on itself as it snakes around steep gorges, lush green rice terraces, in order to reach the city in the mountains. Amazingly, entire communities and villages are built into the sides of the mountain with houses, shops, and farms literally built on top of each other. There is almost no flat place in Baguio City. A tourist will find that they're either walking up a crowded street or they're walking down a crowded street. The giant SM Mall, located in the bustling shopping district, is also unique in that you can walk in at the ground floor, go up three stories, and step off on the ground floor, as the mall is built into the side of a mountain. Narrow streets jam-packed with buses, taxis, jeepneys, and scooters go every which way in the city leading up and down and around the various schools, restaurants, parks, and markets. Being so high in the mountains, the city of Baguio always enjoys relatively pleasant temperatures all year round, and when the rest of the Philippines is baking in the tropical heat of the summer, the moderate temperatures in Baguio has earned it the unofficial title of the Philippines' summer capital. But it also has its drawbacks, as almost every day during the afternoon between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m., a visitor can expect it to rain. During typhoon season, the rains could last for days and days on end, leaving everything from the hardwood floors to the towels in your closet feeling cold and moist. My mother's family owns a rather tall house atop the tallest hill, which overlooks the city. Her three-story, nine-bedroom home is built literally on the side of a cliff, with a narrow road running down the small driveway. Again, in this community, homes were built so close together that your next-door neighbor to your left could be in a house situated on ground ten feet above your house, while your neighbor to your right could be situated on ground twenty feet below you. On the top floor of my mother's home is a balcony, which has a breathtaking view of the entire city and surrounding countryside, as well as the home of our neighbors who live on a narrow cross street at least 100 feet below us. I don't stand out on the balcony for long periods of time, because I'm scared of heights, and I tend to get a touch of vertigo if I look out at the panorama for too long. And so it was at my mother's home on top of this hill, on top of this mountain, where I found myself after my last tour of Iraq. And boy, did I need to decompress. Being trapped and surrounded by 12,000 screaming ISIS fighters and being constantly rocketed every day was no picnic. I'd been napping in one of the upstairs bedrooms for most of the afternoon. It had started raining at around 3 p.m. and didn't start to peter off until around 7 p.m. I was feeling restless and closed in since there was not any reliable internet and there wasn't much in the way of channels to watch on television, as if I could understand what they were saying anyway. 
I was all alone in this big house, with nothing to do. I threw on a pair of jeans and a black t-shirt that I bought from the PX at Camp Erifjan in Kuwait, and stepped outside. To get to the street, you had to walk down a narrow flight of stone steps, then get on the second landing, then walk down another flight of narrow stone steps, which wound its way down to the driveway. There was a bright red metal gate, which enclosed the driveway, and opened directly into the narrow street in front of the house. Once outside the gate, I turned left to where the road drops another fifty feet to another road below. The angle of the road is so steep that vehicles don't drive down this road, but more fall to the street below. Like I said earlier, the houses, shops, and little stores on the hill were built awfully close to one another. It turned out to be a clear and pleasant evening. I'd expected to see more people running about, but aside from a few stray cats and dogs and the occasional crowing of a family rooster, I appeared to be alone on the well-lit cobblestone streets. At the base of the hill was another crowded and bustling street. During the daytime, it was filled with automotive shops, marketplaces, restaurants, and places to purchase farming tools and equipment. However, at night, as if by magic, this is all replaced by lounges, karaoke bars, gentlemen's clubs, and places where people can dance and mingle. Feeling in the mood for a nice bourbon and live music, I decided to walk the mile and some change down the hill to one of the nicer lounges at the base of the hill. As I said, the streets were rather narrow and the sidewalks where there were sidewalks were only about two feet wide. It was unusually quiet, and the air was still. As I began walking down one of the narrow streets, which led down to the main road leading down the hill. I was enjoying the peace and tranquility of it all, and the fact that I didn't have to worry about incoming rocket attacks. I looked around and marveled at how everything here seemed to look like it was frozen in time, and that everything looked exactly like it did when it was first built, back before World War II. The constant rains, lichen, moss, flowers, and vines growing out of the stone retaining walls which lined the streets. It was like a lost city somewhere deep in the Amazon rainforest. I was lost in thought, and I didn't even recognize that I was now at a portion of the road where the streetlights were getting dim. It soon began to get misty. The results of the moist night air mixing with the warmer temperatures and soon... I could not see where I was stepping. I eventually came to a point where the winding road intersected with another main road. I wasn't lost, but I also didn't quite know exactly where I was. I knew, however, that if I kept taking the road that went down, I was going in the right direction. I chose the road going to the right which seemed to lead down off the hill, so I followed it for a few minutes. Soon, a couple of taxicabs appeared out of the mist and passed me going up the hill, so I knew that I was on the right track. I soon passed a beauty salon, which was on the ground floor of a tall hotel called the Mountainside Inn. I seemed to recall that the lounge that I wanted to visit was behind this establishment, further down the base of the hill. A very narrow side street led off the main road towards the direction of the lounge but it was shrouded in darkness. 
I could either continue on the main road, which would eventually lead to the street at the base of the hill, and then turn right and walk towards the lounge. Or I could see if this dark, narrow street was actually a shortcut. So I decided to go down the dark and narrow street to see where it led. Because I was an American soldier fresh from the war vacationing in a foreign land where I barely recognized any landmarks. So, yeah, no common sense. I walked in the middle of the street because the mist and fog were now all around me and I didn't want to step into a ditch or open drain which I knew lined the streets. The road wound down between the mountainside inn on the right and a low stone wall to my left and led downwards, so I knew I was still going in the right direction. But instead of turning left towards the main road at the base of the hill like I'd expected, the road went right, doubling back on itself and winding back up the hill. The houses next to me were pitch black, and there were no working streetlights here, as the mist seemed to swallow me in its embrace. I thought about doubling back and walking to the main road, but uh, I wasn't really in a hurry. Plus, this walk was kind of cool. In fact, it was getting cooler by the second. It was downright chilly. Just as I had the feeling that I wasn't alone on this dark stretch of road, an icy chill ran up my spine and I could just barely see my shadow in front of me, from a faint glow to my back. Thinking that a car was approaching behind me, I turned around to see a young lady in a white dress, standing ten feet from me. At first I thought that the reason I could see her was because of the light from the moon, but I soon realized she was the one who was glowing. Huh? I thought. That's cool. I stared at her for a second. The air around her seemed to shimmer ever so slightly, so I couldn't see her in any exact detail. However, from the expression on her face, I could tell that this young lady was not happy to see me. With my knowledge of the traditional Filipino language, somewhere between none and zero, I did the only thing I could do. Hi, I said in English. The glowing young lady with the angry expression said nothing, but in my head I could hear... Japanese. I... wait, what? I said. How did you do that? You are a soldier. You are Japanese, came the angry voice in my head in an accusing tone. You are a Japanese soldier. I... well... oh yeah, but, but I'm only about a quarter Japanese. I'm mostly Filipino. And a little Spanish and Chinese, if my mom is to be believed. Grandma got around a lot, I guess. You are a Japanese soldier. She screamed in my head. You do not belong here. This is our land. Somewhere in her rage, I could also hear desperation and sadness. During the Japanese invasion of the Philippines in World War II, the Japanese had done unspeakably cruel and violent things to the Filipino people. Back then, in the eyes of some of the Japanese, the Filipino people were seen as subhuman, 
and the Japanese soldiers often took pleasure in tossing Filipino babies into the air so that they could try to impale them with bayonets. In fact, the reason why I'm part Japanese was because a Japanese soldier had gotten my grandmother pregnant. My mother had told me stories of a young lady in a white dress that was savagely, well, assaulted and brutally murdered by the Japanese. Her ghost is said to haunt these hills, guiding innocent travelers who may have gotten lost, and frightening evil men who had wicked intentions. I'm not frightened of you, miss. I'm not an evil man, and I have no wicked intentions. Japanese soldier. She hissed. Yes, I admitted. I am part Japanese, and yes, I am a soldier. But I'm an American soldier. I paused, wondering if she would say anything. She just stared at me, as if waiting. We fought side by side with you. We suffered with you. We bled and died with you. And together we were defeated by the Japanese with you. But a promise was fulfilled. We returned again, and we threw out the Japanese soldiers. This land belongs to the Filipino people. I'm sorry for what happened to you, but I am not your enemy. I am an American soldier. The young lady regarded me for a second, then slowly turned away, seeming to take the mist with her. The air grew warmer, and the streetlights flickered on as she slowly vanished. Go with God, I said as she finally faded from view. In my head, I heard one last word. Salamat. Later, as I was relaxing and enjoying a nice bourbon on the rocks at the crowded Miles Club, I asked a friendly bartender what the word Salamat means. <laughs> Wait, you're Filipino and you don't know what Salamat means. Uh, humor me, I said. Salamat, said the bartender. It's Filipino for thank you. Experience 2 from Sidriex I am an avid knife enthusiast, and I love sharp objects, which lead me to my hobby of blade making. My grandfather gave me my first blade when I was around seven years old. I know I was too young. It was a 17-inch bolo forged by a local blacksmith and was made from iron. I loved that blade, and I would often bring it with me everywhere I would play. The reason why my grandfather gave it to me was because there is this belief that iron can protect you and harm evil entities. That would try to harm you. He told me a story about the time my uncle and father were chased by a man in Anglo. A manangle is an evil vampiric monster in the Philippines that looks like a half-bodied woman with bat wings, which it uses to fly around every night while its innards dangle out from where the hips should be, connected to the lower body. It has a long tongue that it uses to slip through even the tiniest crevices on the roof and suck the unborn baby inside the womb of a sleeping mother. There are ways to kill such a monster, and one of the most effective methods is to find the lower body and put ash, salt, or shards of glass on the open area where the menangle will reconnect its body.
Now back to the story. My uncle and father were young and foolish so much that they sometimes venture out at night and test each other's courage. The incident happened a few months after they moved into our farm. There was no electricity and the only light at night was a small flame from a gas lamp. They went out daring each other about things and to see if they could encounter something scary, which they were not disappointed to find that they did. My uncle was the first one to shout, taunting what was ever out there while my father remained silent, trying to keep his cool. They walked around the rice field, still calling out. My father only spoke a few things as he followed his little brother along. An hour later, something heeded their call. The crickets went loud and the wind blew harder, as if there was a storm coming. They stayed close to each other while their heads tilted up, looking around, clearly shocked by what was happening. My father, in a panic, told my uncle that they needed to go home and just... Just when they were about to head off, a strong gust of wind blew and followed by a loud flapping of wings. The sound was clearly not from a small pair of wings, but they knew it was from a larger pair. They hurriedly ran towards the direction of their house while this thing was coming at them and it gave chase. It tried to swoop down, but a couple of trees blocked its path and my father caught a glimpse of this bat-like monstrosity. It had long, shaggy hair, bright orange eyes, and was wearing an old blouse. They ran faster, but the problem was the house was situated on the top of a hill, with no trees and no cover. They stayed low under a citrus tree for a while and decided to make a break for it. My father was never known for his leg strength, and this hill was very steep, which means whatever running speed he can give, will be reduced by half. And yet with that happening, he was able to sprint up with his brother as if it was flat ground. They often say that adrenaline can do wonders. They reached the house, which at a time was made from bamboo walls and had a grass roof, your typical hut. They closed the doors and windows. My uncle grabbed my grandfather's bolo and held it tight. One of the things that our old ancestors passed down to us was how to ward off or scare off unnatural beings. My uncle started to pull the bolo halfway out of its wooden sheath and forcefully put it back in so that it will make a loud sound that these kinds of monsters know much too well. The sound it made is an indication that the tenants are armed and are ready to fight. This sort of trick only works if your blade has been forged and is made from iron. The man and angle flew around a couple of times circling the house before it left. While this was happening, my grandfather and grandmother were in a different town visiting our relatives and was not home for days. My father and uncle did not sleep and waited for sunrise. When the warm ray of light peeked through the crevice of the door, they finally felt relief. My father's uncle came around that afternoon to say hi and was told about what happened. He thought it was stupid for my father and my uncle to challenge unknowns and not think of the consequences. My grandfather was told about what they did and it was only natural that they got not only a tongue lashing but a few whips at the back as well. When I was born, my grandparents were the ones who raised me. 
and due to what happened with my uncle and my father, so my grandfather thought, that his little firstborn grandson might get into some trouble as well, since I was told that even at a very young age, I tend to wander off to the woods playing by myself. This is why he gave me my first blade and told me to never let go of it if I wander off somewhere. Being incredibly young, I never gave mine to it and was only happy to have had my blade by my side. It was strange for some people that most kids wanted the latest toys, but for me, I wanted the biggest blade. So if you're going to have your own personal blade, try to get one that's handmade and is made from iron. Stainless steel may be less troublesome to maintain, but it never hurts to have something that may protect you, not just from other humans, but also from whatever else is out there. It came from the attic, from George. When I was twelve, my parents moved us into an old brick house, a twenty-minute drive from the nearby town. There were a couple of neighbors up and down the road from us, but we never really got to know them. It was mostly just cedar trees in every direction. I would later learn from my mom that this home was pretty old and had not been lived in for a couple of decades. My parents were happy to have purchased the home at such a competitive price, though it doesn't sound like they even had any other buyers to compete with at the time. I also recently learned that the old house has long since been demolished. Now, being twelve, you'd think moving to a new home would be a bit tougher on me, but I welcomed it. We were still within the region, so I wouldn't have to change schools. I would just have to take a bus from there on out. And my parents seemed so much happier. My dad found himself to be a passionate gardener, and my mother absolutely enjoyed raising a small pin of chickens there. As for the house itself, the place was amazingly well put together. Despite its obvious age, the wiring worked perfectly, as did the plumbing. The gas lines never gave us trouble either. Sure, we had the creaking floorboards and all that, but nothing really fell apart. Whoever had built the home had put their care and patience into building it, made it that much easier for my family to fall in love with the place. Things began getting weird there, after moving in. It all started with noises in the attic, the sound of something crawling around up there, starting around sundown. Of course, the usual explanations were made. Dad said it was squirrels or a barn owl while Mom said that raccoons and possums were quite common around these parts. The sound really only annoyed my dad, as he saw it as some rodent encroaching on his comfort and prized home. As for me, it was kind of soothing to fall asleep to. I would imagine little squirrels getting ready for a shut-eye at dusk, or getting playful in the night. There were other circumstances, though. Every once in a long while, one of Mom's chickens would go missing. We would never find it, though. Not even a feather trail would be left, forcing Mom to assume that the chicken had somehow escaped of its own volition. Every couple of months when it happened, she'd simply rework her chicken pen, or upgrade it in some way, 
At a point, so many improvements to the pin actually worked, and the chicken disappearances stopped. I did experience something rather weird one morning, when those chicken disappearances were at their height. Before daybreak, around 5.30 a.m. each school day, I'd have to wake up, get ready, then throw the chickens some feed on the way to the bus stop. Simple enough. After a couple of months, it became so routine to me, it'd be easy to forget doing any of it, once I would finally fully wake up during the bus ride. I can't tell you how many times my autopilot mode had me paranoid that I'd forgotten to feed the chickens, though in actuality I had never made that mistake. As an adult, it's kind of like driving to work, but getting there and not even remembering the drive. Routines that have become deeply programmed into you, like that, are a curious thing. So, when something strange happens, interrupting your routine, you become quickly and fully aware of it. Now, during my morning rituals, my parents are usually already gone and off to work. They were both home by noon each day, meaning I was alone whenever I went to the bus stop. On my way out the door, that particular morning, a half-eaten Pop-Tart in my free hand, I started to make my way to the chicken pen. In my other hand was a plastic green scoop full of chicken feed. As usual, once I made it to the pen, I opened the wire gate, and I tossed the feed inside, making sure to spread it around a bit. The chickens went wild, excitedly munching down on their breakfast, while I shut the wire gate and made my way back to the front door to slide the scoop back into the feed bag. After that, I began walking down the dirt path to the road. I recall that morning being especially foggy. There was a large pond on the property, so we were no strangers to fog in the early hours of the day. But that day, the mist was peculiarly thick. I had at most twenty yards of visibility before things began to fade into silhouettes and eventually into nothingness. When I made it to about twenty-five yards past the chicken coop, I heard a noise that made me come to a complete stop. Once they settled down into their meal, the chickens were usually quiet as they ate, with an occasional cluck. But what I had heard was a sudden stir and panic from the chickens inside the pen, the sound of feathers rustling together, and anxious clucks are very distinct. I turned around and started to walk back toward the pen. At the time, the walls of the pen were about five feet up with a wire mesh covering the top. As I stepped a few feet closer, however, I gasped. I remember how wide my eyes went. There was a dark silhouette standing next to the chicken pen. With ease, the figure had not only peeled back the wire mesh that made up the top of the pen, but they were tall enough to need to lean down to reach through the top and grab one of the chickens. In fact, the arm was already in the process of coming back up with one of our hens in hand. I stood there in shock. Maybe I should have shouted at least but the proportions of the figure were all out of whack. I mean, what kind of tall, lanky, chicken-stealing weirdo had been coming out onto our property when they thought we were gone to take our chickens? 
This stranger was tall enough to just peel back the top and lean in to have his choice of our livestock. When I nervously cleared my throat, I saw the arm twitch. After a brief moment, it then yanked the chicken out, letting go of the top of the pin and disappearing into the fog. I remember running toward the bus stop after that, the only familiar direction where that creepy stranger couldn't be. I wish I could have run inside the house, but that would have brought me closer to where the stranger had been standing. Those next fifteen minutes as I sat there waiting for the bus to arrive were the most terrifying moments in my life, at the time at least. From any direction and at any point, that figure could appear from the mist. When the bus came and the door opened, I ran so frantically up the steps I tripped. The embarrassment of that only hit me when I was safe in a bus seat and the vehicle was driving away from my home. I couldn't even bring myself to look out the window. After school that day, I came home to a very angry mother. When I asked what was wrong with her, I already knew the answer. Another missing chicken, the one I'd seen get taken. She was busy trying to find where it could have escaped from when I hesitantly tugged on her shirt. Then I explained exactly what I saw this morning. Of course, she was suspicious of such a weird story. After all, a struggling chicken would usually lose a few feathers. When I mentioned the figure peeling off the top of the enclosure, her eyebrow shot up. Apparently, she hadn't yet inspected the top mesh. I watched her pull the wire mesh up effortlessly, meaning something had in fact broken into it or out of it. She cursed under her breath. I thought she would have believed my story a bit more, but she didn't bring it up after that. Mom simply seemed focused on fixing the pin. I think this only cemented her thought that there was some way the chickens were getting out of the coop. Now she had reason to believe they were just jumping or flying out through the top. Luckily, Dad was much more open to my story. In fact, he believed me from the start. Maybe that's no surprise, seeing how territorially he reacted to the mere idea of squirrels walking around our attic. A week after that, Dad had purchased a new rifle and a new pistol, with some ammunition. He then replaced the doorknobs and locks to the entryways of the house. It made me feel safer knowing my dad was looking out for us, but when you're expecting one thing, and it happens to be something else entirely, you're never prepared enough. This next part brings me to the period of living in the house when I began to think the place was haunted. It started with the sounds in the attic, but about a year later, those sounds started to move further than the attic. As I've always had difficulty sleeping and staying asleep, I was of course the first in the house to hear the sounds move from the attic to the kitchen for the first time. This progression was natural, I guess, since the entryway to the attic was in the kitchen. And if it really was a raccoon or possum, the kitchen would be pretty tempting to them. With the mysterious steps finally resounding from the same floor as us, they were more clear too. I soon realized what was making the sounds was heavier than I first assumed. 
What had at first sounded like light pitter-patter in the attic now sounded like human-sized steps walking through the kitchen and into the hallway. The first couple of times I heard it, I listened intently. They would go from attic to kitchen to hallway, then back a few times before going back into the attic and stopping for the night. After experiencing this two more times, I was sure that the house was haunted. I told my parents and asked them if they had heard any noises at night, too. Mom reminded me it was an old house, and old houses creak when the temperature and pressure change. While that made sense, it just didn't make sense to me that old house noises sounded exactly like a heavy person walking around the home. Once again, Dad's will to protect the home brought him to my side. For the next month after that, Dad stayed up in the living room with his rifle in hand and listened. To my annoyance, though, the noises did not pick up again until after my dad gave up, having not heard or seen anything himself. Was I going crazy? Had I been dreaming all this time, I wondered. One night, wanting to see this ghost to at least prove it to myself, I stayed awake and kept my bedroom door wide open. The door faced the hallway and had a slim view of the kitchen through the end of the hall. That night I waited and waited and waited. It took a few hours before finally the attic noises started up. At first I wanted to rush out of bed and wake my parents to have them listen, but something told me the noises would stop if I got up. This spirit was seemingly aware if we were watching. I thought to myself that's probably why Dad hadn't seen or heard anything for a month straight. It knew he was in the living room. I could hear the attic door creak slowly open, then shut. After a few moments of silence, the heavy steps began. Before long, I saw a tall silhouette pass through the kitchen archway and into the living room. Excitedly, I covered my face. I knew it. I remember thinking with a smile, this house is haunted. I don't know why I wasn't scared after seeing that. Guess I was more fascinated by the supernatural than scared. So I lay there listening to the footsteps. As usual, they came down the hallway right past my open door, then back up into the kitchen, before it went silent. Whatever it was, it had completed its routine already and was done for the night. With a smile, I yanked the blanket off my face, thinking about the story I'd have to share with my friends at school on Monday. I froze. I'd never felt so absolutely, devastatingly sick to my stomach before. My chest felt as if it was caving in on itself. There next to my bed stood a tall silhouette, so tall its head touched the ceiling. I saw its midsection first, before glancing up at its face. What I remember are white, pupilless eyes, pointed ears, and scruffy fur around its neck and elongated snout. Extremely long arms held up, as if the thing didn't know what to do with them. Attached to those arms were hands with pointed fingers. 
I could clearly see its chest expanding and contracting as it breathed. A torso, thin and bony. I can even remember feeling a warm, wet glob of drool hit my hand from the thing's mouth as it stood over me. That's how close to my bed it had gotten. Had it only stopped because I suddenly moved? And how could it have possibly walked into my room without making the slightest noise, compared to how noisy it had been walking around the house? As any normal kid would, I screamed so hard, my lungs were likely on the verge of collapsing. In the same second, movement came from my parents' room as my dad came rushing to check on me. The creature's ear turned like a radar dish in the direction of the hallway. Then it took two large steps before launching itself through the closed window of my room, shattering the glass. I caught a glimpse of its legs then, so long and thin and weirdly curved, with knees that seemed to bend the wrong way. Dad was standing in the mess of the shattered window in moments, asking what in the world happened. I sat silently, horrified, and in utter disbelief of what I'd just seen. I never heard sounds in the attic again. It was soon apparent that thing had been living in our attic. It had been very cautious and patient with stealing our chickens, not taking too much, not leaving the attic until Mom's chicken pen was too difficult to break into, not walking around looking for scraps of food unless it knew everyone was in bed. That thing had been all skin and bones. So if it had been so afraid of us for so long, what made it come into my room? I dread understanding why, but it's quite obvious to me. Predators are nearly completely silent when stalking prey. When desperate, they'll target animals they may not have targeted before, but they'll still go for the safer, smaller target. It saw my bedroom door open and walked right in. In the Dark of Winter From Will-O-Wisp my sister and I live very interesting lives. Throughout our years, we have always, always experienced the paranormal. Both good and bad, and a mix of whoever or whatever decides to come and say hello. Recently, something else decided to come along. To most people, it's just an Algonquin myth. A scary story and nothing more. I cannot stress how wrong they are. These experiences are scattered, a mix of mine and my sister Bethany's, and still occurring. For me, they began in late summer 2020. We live in rural northern east coast America, real close to the Canadian border. We have animals, Sarge, an Australian shepherd black lab, and Wicket, my black and white barn cat. Wicket loves to sometimes sneak out at night. Which is worrisome, as our backyard is nothing but woods. Sometimes he succeeds, and when he's ready to come back in, he'll paw at the glass of our patio door connected to the living room, creating a rubbing sound. Encounter 1 
Late one summer night, I was settled on our couch playing Left for Dead or watching YouTube. I was the only one awake. Nothing else was going on but me trying to avoid the zombies on my TV. I was interrupted when I heard Wicket pawing at the glass behind me. Annoyed, I paused my game and checked the time. 11 p.m. I scowled at my furry friend as I proceeded to get up and turned towards the curtain-drawn patio threshold. I stopped. Wicket was scurrying away from it in a panic, and the pawing continued. I stared in bewilderment, and the more carefully I listened, I realized I could hear a light thump against the glass before a limb was dragged down it. It was making that bare skin against glass rubbing noise but slightly louder and slowly. It went on for some time, even when I hunkered down into the blankets in an attempt to instinctively hide. Eventually I heard it stop and something shuffle away from the entrance. Encounter 2 Sarge also has a way to let us know when he's ready to come inside. A single chirp-like bark. Beth and my mother sometimes drive into work together for an extremely early morning shift. So early, it's still blackout. This experience was during one of those mornings. As they get ready to leave for these shifts, they let Sarge out to do his business, and he signals when he's done. I didn't have a reason to get up since he was with them, so I thought I'd lay in bed listening to their shenanigans in the dark. When, very suddenly... I heard that single bark coming from the backyard, and soon Beth was out on the porch. Seconds later, she's calling for him, since she couldn't see him anywhere. I heard our dog climbing to his feet from the second floor of our home and clambering down the stairs to meet her at the front door. I froze. I had heard him outside, though. I heard Beth say something in shock, but I was unsure what. I looked outside into the woods, however, I didn't hear it again. I guess Mom didn't hear it, though. She must have been on the other side of the house. No one heard it again, before or after they left. Encounter 3 This experience is the one I don't like to talk about or even think of. Three or four months have passed with no further occurrence since summer. I thought whatever it was had left, so I didn't think anything else of it. We're now in December 2020. Beth had gone to visit her boyfriend who lives an hour away. I loved going out for late evening walks with my headphones on. I went out for a quick stroll, enjoying the darkening scenery and alone time. I passed this small graveyard I live down the road by, which has some woods, a small field behind it, and more woods behind that. Nothing happened during the time out there. However, when I decided to turn around, I got an odd feeling in my chest. I don't really think much of it since I was heading back anyway. I'm about to pass by the cemetery again, and decided to turn down my music all the way and take my headphones off to adjust them. As I did, I slowed down when I picked up on a faint smell. There had been absolutely no smell before. Not too strong, but enough to startle me. 
It was the unpleasant scent of nasty, rotten meat. I was wondering what smelled like that. I picked up my pace and was about to put my headphones back in. When... Kayla... My veins went cold. I fully faced that dark, wooded field. Bethany wasn't home, my sister wasn't home, yet I heard her shouting my name loud and clear. At first, there was nothing. I saw nothing, but something was seeing me. In my hurried pace home, I wanted to run, but intuition was screaming at me not to. I listened, although I kept my stride a bit faster than before. The whole time I felt I wasn't alone, and the more these experiences keep happening, the more apparent we're not. I get inside, lock the door, and hunker down thinking of what I just heard. It sounded like my sister, just like her. However, I realized when I heard her voice, I remembered also hearing this odd feedback behind it. A very strange and distorted, warbling, freakish feedback. I haven't been out after dark since. Bethany's Experience On another extremely early morning shift to work during a crappy snowstorm, Bethany might have seen it. She was driving down a mucky strip of road with two more bigger fields on either side and the forests far back behind them. Through the falling snow, her headlights partially illuminated something by the lane opposite of her. Something humanoid and tall, very thin, and once she told me, possibly holding itself. The silhouetted top half of its body was bunched, like it was trying to shield itself from the cold. It caught her off guard. Her driving slowed for a moment when she passed by, thinking what it could have been. But her own instincts urgently told her to not look and to keep going, especially knowing there was nothing in those fields that close to the road. She sped away, leaving whatever it was behind. It was confirmed she really did see something. On her way back, it was gone. Encounter 4 January 2021 I came home from one of my shifts all excited one evening, since a couple of my old friends were in the area and had decided to visit. We don't see each other a whole lot anymore. I swung the car door open and hopped out, just for my excitement to be washed away. I was immediately hit in the face with a god-awful smell of rot. It was so bad... It stopped me in my tracks while a feeling of absolute dread washed over me. And then my intuition told me, it's by the shed. I didn't look. I could feel it was there. I was just about ready to leap into the car again for some sort of safety barrier. However, Bethany ripped the curtains open, unaware what was going on, and hollered happily for me to get inside. I didn't hesitate. I bolted, soon to be met with everyone. Seeing my friends had me scramble to hide my distress to keep them from worrying. Quickly, I was able to forget the occurrence for the time being. We caught up with life and had a good time. After our catch-up, they had to leave, and I had to move our vehicle out of the way. Once outside again, 
I noticed that the death stench had completely vanished. No trace at all. There were only the smells of pine trees and snowy dirt. The next morning I noticed over on my neighbor's shed nearby. The snow was disturbed, and the branches were flattened down on the roof. It looked as if there was something crouched there, hidden between two trees framing the back end, checking us out very close. I can keep going, but it's just feeling extreme dread or smelling and hearing it more than anything now. Scratching or knocking at the windows, once in a while it barks at us in my dog's voice and that creepy feedback it gives off. I know what coyotes and wolves sound like, and they aren't the answer here. One time it barked at all three of us, Bethany, Sarge, and I, which had Sarge whirl around and bolt into the house from hearing himself in the trees. This is something he's never done. Bethany may have seen it a second time, a bony figure crouched in itself not far from our home. I might have too. A shoulder, upper arm, and a bald head quickly ducked behind the shed one night when I turned the patio light on. Tall in height, horribly thin and pale, but fast, so darn fast. We've heard it scream a couple of times as well. Pained, frustrated screams unlike anything we've ever heard. I looked up everything we have around here. Bobcat, cougar, fox, deer, wolf, you name it. But no similarities. None. Once it made a noise I have a very hard time describing, but fully know it scared the holy heck out of me. The sounds this thing makes, I can't forget them. I want to try and record them in the future, but I'm too darn nervous, and they're always so sudden. We finally caught a break, though. There's people renting a cabin next to us, and there's also ice fishers and skidoos around. So it's been really quiet, for now. We cope by joking around, calling it our neighbor and such. Aside from that, this is scary. I'm hoping the bears wake up soon. Maybe they can scare it away. I've learned for some reason it's scared of the big furry animals. I'm worried what will happen when everyone leaves until they come out of hibernation. It acts up whenever the two of us are alone. With the thought always in mind, I'm going to look into crystal gridding my property and home, along with other protection methods. I know how close it's gotten, and we're lucky. Very lucky, it's done nothing more than what it's been doing so far. Often I wonder what happened, who the poor soul is that became this thing. But that is all I'll be left with, thinking of what its situation may have been. I've always known they're real, elusive as heck but a true creature. When you hear the stories, when you hear the encounters, you think, God, I hope I don't have to go through that. Or, yeah, okay. How can something like that happen? But when it does happen to you, it changes you and your view of everything. There is so much more in the world than just animals and humans. Believe me, I know. Be careful. Stalked by Bigfoot From Anonymous I was going for a drive with one of my friends a few months ago. We'd just been to the beach and we were heading to her house. 
we decided to take the scenic route because it was a nice quiet day and we both loved going for car drives. We ended up driving along a road surrounded by dense forest. If you were to walk straight from the road through the forest, you would only see thick pine trees for miles. I'd never seen this road before, and neither had my friend. We were a bit agitated now because it became silent all of a sudden. We had the windows down, and only a few seconds ago, we could hear birds chirping and all the other sounds of nature. But suddenly it had all stopped. All we could hear now was the car's engine. We kept driving for a while. It seemed like this road went on forever. At one point, my friend pulled over to the side of the road because she saw something she wanted to check out. I was against this because I was freaked out already, but I ended up following her out of the car and towards a tree along the side of the road. It had been completely pulled out of the ground. When I bent down closer to look at it, I saw lots of thick, dark hair covering it. This didn't make me feel any better. My friend decided to collect some of the hair and take them home. I tried to protest, but there was nothing I could do to change her mind. We then got back in the car and began to drive along the road again. We were only driving for a bit, before I noticed something in the rearview mirror. I pointed it out to my friend, and she slammed on the brakes. She stared in the mirror. What the heck is that? She asked, but not in a nervous way but more in a way that she wanted to go back and look at it. Even though this creature was very far behind us, it was huge. It was at least eight feet tall, covered in thick black hair, and it had piercing black eyes. We both sat there silently, watching this thing as it stared back at us. Then it suddenly started coming towards us. I screamed at my friend to drive, and she did. We sped away and had no intention of staying on that creepy road. We finally made it off that road and parked the car so we could talk about what just happened. After a while of talking and processing what happened, I looked behind us at the road, and I saw it again, just standing there and staring. We then went home, very quickly I might add. We didn't see that thing again that day, thankfully, and I haven't seen it since. I don't want to see it again. Alaskan Cryptid Encounter From Christopher Z I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. Let me start out with, I'm an avid hiker and love the outdoors. Me and some friends, Cassie, Ben, and Kiara, we're going hiking one day in the summer of 2020. We were up in a place called Crow Pass, a trail that leads from Eagle River to Girdwood, Alaska. It's about a 20-mile hike, and at the pace we were going, we were planning on camping one night and continuing the next day. We began our hike and had a friend set up to pick us up in Girdwood. Upon entering the woodlands, we were greeted by amazing scenery and sunshine. We hiked for about two hours, and then we took a break, opening up some snacks, sitting around to relax and eat. A couple of hikers came around and we talked for a while. We learned they were visiting from out of state. Eventually, they ended up leaving us, 
and bringing up our encounter with the couple will be important later. We started hiking again soon after they left, and we hiked about eight or so miles. We stopped then to make camp, cooking up some hot dogs and s'mores, talking about stuff in the past. Suddenly we heard cracking and rustling of sticks and leaves. All of us paused, looking towards the direction the sound had come from. But we couldn't see much. We were dumb enough to dare each other to go closer to the noise to investigate. Cassie was chosen to go and look into the noises further. When she came back, she was white as snow. We asked her what happened and she just stayed silent. Soon after, she sat down and began to cry. We were all super concerned about what was going on. She told us that it was Kiera calling her name and that it was coming from deeper in the woods. But she knew that Kiera was with the rest of us. We were nervous but chalked it up to tiredness. It was a long day, so I said we should all go to bed. We went to sleep, but in the middle of the night I was awakened by a faint scratching noise coming from the side of my tent. I froze and looked over to Cassie. She was fast asleep, and so was everyone else. So I was the only one hearing this. I wanted to wake someone up, but I didn't want to let the thing outside know I was awake and aware. I heard the gravel outside being moved around as the creature, our intruder, circled the tent. I went back to sleep soon after, and was awakened again, this time by Brandon yelling obscenities, wondering why our tent had been slashed. I woke up quickly then, and noticed that the whole flap door of the tent had been ripped. The tent wasn't cheap, and we were all mad. We soon packed up and got ready to leave, when we heard the sound of the couple saying they needed help. We were thrown off guard, and panicked, so we walked into the woods to investigate. Cassie suddenly remembered what had happened the night prior and yelled at us to stop, to just keep going on our journey on the trail. We kept hiking, all paranoid on what was out there, and we stayed silent for most of the way to Girdwood. I noticed a change in the atmosphere and how quiet the surrounding area was most of the day. This didn't seem good at all. I didn't want to scare everyone else there, but I told them we needed to hurry up. About five or six hours later of moving quickly, we finally made it to the exit. We could hear birds again, and the breeze was again blowing. We were more than happy to talk to the park ranger about the experience, and I could tell he was hiding stuff from us regarding our questions. He seemed happy, but panicked at the same time. We've spoken about the hike since then, but we're all still stumped regarding what it might have been. A Wendigo or Skinwalker are our closest guesses. Alaskan Wendigo from Van Oss I was visiting my brother and his girlfriend. Brad and Mary, respectively. They both lived in Alaska, 
and I lived in Wisconsin at the time, so the best way to get there was by plane. When my flight landed, I went to the front and got my bags. As I got out, I saw Brad and Mary waiting on me. I went over to greet them as we haven't seen each other for a while. Then we all climbed into my brother's truck. On the ride, we talked about how things had been going for us, and how excited I was that I was going to be hanging out with them for a couple of weeks. Soon enough, we made it to their house. I unloaded my bags and went inside. Brad showed me to the room I'd be staying in. After that, we decided to go hunting. Since I'd brought my hunting gear along, I joined them. Grabbing some camping gear, we went to the site that they both were accustomed to. We had to show a park ranger our permission slip, apparently, or some sort of admission form. Then we went to the spot. When we got there, we set up camp, and we each went our separate ways to go hunting. Brad gave me and Mary walkie-talkies to keep in touch with everyone. After splitting up, I was hoping to see a big buck or an elk. They were common here. After a long while of walking and not seeing anything, I climbed a nearby tree to see if I could find a better spot or somewhere to hunker down and wait for my prey to come to me, but nothing really stuck out. I began to climb down the tree, but suddenly I heard this ear-piercing screech. At first I thought it was an elk, but it sounded wrong, like a cross between a scream from a woman and the call of an elk. I grabbed my walkie-talkie and pressed the button. Guys, I think I heard an elk. Nice, Brad said. Yeah, I think I heard the same call a ways out, said Mary. Well, I'll go and see what I can spot, I replied. Brad let me know. All right, we should be getting back at camp later, though. As I ventured to the spot where I thought I'd heard the noise... I found nothing, at first anyway, but then came a horrible smell. I couldn't make out what it was, but as I searched around, I did discover a dead elk. I'm pretty sure this is the elk I'd heard screaming. It must have been screaming for its life. It was so mangled and rancid, I almost threw up when I saw it. It looked like a bear attacked it at first but I saw claw marks much bigger than what a bear would do. And when I saw how deep they went, I was beginning to feel freaked out. I started making my way back to camp, and as I walked, I felt as if I was being watched by something. I shrugged it off, thinking I was just getting paranoid. When I made it back to camp, Brad and Mary were there. So, did you get your elk? Brad asked. I found one. It was dead already. If I had to guess, I'd say a bear killed it. No worries. At least we brought some food along. Mary reminded us. Hey, uh, by the way, while I was walking back to camp, I felt as if I was being watched. I'm not sure if that means anything, but I thought I'd let you know. I told Brad. Hmm. Well, this area is known for bears, wolves, and mountain lions. Could be any of those. Brad answered. When he said that, it made my heart jump. 
but we had a fire going, so we didn't need to worry about them getting too close to the campsite. It was getting late, and the sky was turning that beautiful orange. We roasted up some marshmallows, and when we finished eating, we told some scary stories. Before getting too creeped out, though, we moved on to discussing how our lives had been going. As the night wore on, we stopped talking, kind of just sitting there and listening to nature. That's why it was so easy to notice that the critters just went silent. Brad must have noticed I looked concerned. Bro, what is it? He asked. I shushed him. The two of them also noticed how quiet it was. As far as I know, when the woods go quiet, it typically means there's a large predator around. Whether that's a bear or mountain lion or something else. After a few minutes of silence, we heard a deep, guttural voice of a man. We were all scared. Brad then called out. Hey, hey hello? hello? Who's out there? Who's out there? What do you need, do you help, need with? help with? There was no response. After a moment, we began to hear footsteps going around our campsite. This was followed by some sort of growl. By then we knew that whatever that was, we didn't think it was a person. Not a normal person, anyway. We grabbed our firearms, and I fired a shot into the air. After that, it was silent again. Soon the footsteps came back. My brother whispered to the two of us, Let's make a run for it back to the truck. We nodded in agreement. When Brad counted to three, we all ran for it. While I ran, I could feel that something was chasing us, and it sounded like it was running on hands and feet. We finally got back to the truck. Getting back in, we locked all the doors and windows. When my brother started the truck, the headlights turned on, of course, but they instantly revealed a creature that will haunt us all forever. It was a tall, humanoid thing, its skin was gray and pale. Its form looked like bone being covered by old skin that didn't fit. Its legs ended in deer hooves, and it had long arms with claws for fingers. Based on how thin and frail it appeared, it looked as if it hadn't eaten in months. But its head is what I'll always remember. It was like a deer skull, with antlers on top, and it had a long snout with sharpened teeth that were otherwise human-like, and eyes that glowed red. All three of us screamed. My brother got us out of there as fast as he could. When we made it back to the house and ran inside, we locked all the doors, and we stayed up together all night, afraid that thing would follow us. After staying awake for a few hours, nothing else happened. In the morning, we were so scared, we just talked about what happened the previous night. After gathering our courage, we went back to the campsite to get our things, and luckily it was all still there. So we packed it all up, and we never went back again.
This happened about a year ago. Brad and Mary still live in Alaska, but they've never seen that thing again. Nowadays, I believe what we encountered may have been a wendigo. This creature has allegedly been seen in most parts of North America. People have gone missing in the woods, and unfortunately, sometimes only their bones are found by other campers and forest rangers, if any trace of them is found at all. I'm just happy we didn't become the Wendigo's next victims, and for those of you who live or want to go to Alaska, be aware of your surroundings, and never follow the voices that come from the woods, because it could be a Wendigo luring you to its feeding grounds. So camp safely, and take care. Unidentified Alaskan Cryptid From Spooky Hippie I lived in a very rural area of central Alaska for twelve years, until I was thirteen. My sister and I used to adventure a lot. I'm Big Sis. At the time, I was eleven and she was nine. She went everywhere with me. We used to walk a few miles down a power line path to see what we could see. It was like thirty feet wide and a straight line for miles. Well, one day we headed down the path like usual. Daylight, no weird feelings, no eerie quiet. Just another day. We get about three hundred feet in, and one of the power poles shifts. We stop immediately. We watch it, and it moves again. But it's not actually one of the power poles. It's a tree. It's too far away, about four hundred feet or so. My mind is scrambling for an explanation. No Alaskan wildlife is that big. I mean, this thing was as tall as a power pole or a mature tree. The biggest of bears would be dwarfed by it, like a Pomeranian next to a basketball player. I squinted, trying to see if it was indeed a tree man. But all I knew for sure was it looked more like driftwood in a humanoid shape, and it moved all weird, all jerkily, not in an excessive way. It didn't look demonic, just a strange gait compared to someone not made of driftwood. Based on stories I would hear in the future, I would now say it could have been a stick man. In my case, there was only one of them, and it was huge, like Siren Head, if you've heard of that. A video in the far future of this event, of Siren Head, is what shook this memory loose. Of course, I'm not saying it was Siren Head. I remember us leaving, quietly and quickly. I don't remember running from it until we got on our property. It wasn't behind us, but if it was, it wasn't pursuing us. I sent my sister the video last week of Siren Head and asked if she remembered something similar. I didn't give any hints. I didn't want to lead her memory to believe anything other than what she remembered. But she remembered it too. Not what it looked like, but that after we got home that day, we planned new places to go explore to avoid that area. And after that, we would start avoiding paths with woods on both sides altogether. We never saw it again, 
But that doesn't mean it wasn't there, or that the one we saw wasn't just one of many that are nearly impossible to spot due to their thinness and texture. Has anyone else seen something like this? I'd love to hear your stories. I'm not sure if it was something we should even fear. I'm not sure if it was even aware of our presence that day. But I do know that my sister and I were horrified that it might see, hear, or sense us when we were looking at it. I mean, we were scared enough that we never went down that path again. But I don't know if it would have chased us or hurt us. Worst Night of My Life From Colton When I was in elementary school, my father had moved to a different state, and I was in a vulnerable state of mind. I'm now seventeen, and every time I think about this night, my heart fails to keep a calm pace. My mother and I had just met some family friends for dinner. On our way home from a nice dinner, I had a creepy feeling in the back of my neck. I kept looking behind the car, expecting to see something, but there was always nothing. I brushed it off. Being the quiet type, I said nothing to my mother. As soon as I got home, I felt the worst fear of my life. I went and sat in my room trying to calm down while my mother went to use the bathroom. As I sat there, I heard a voice say to me, You're not alone. The voice was calming, but as soon as it said that, I knew why I was so tense. The voice was right. I wasn't alone. Somebody, or more accurately, something, was in my house. I grabbed my small hatchet, that I owned at the time, and went to the bathroom door, shouting, Mom! Someone's in the house! Immediately, she opened the door and looked me in the eye, then saw the axe. We continued to search the house and found nothing. We called our dinner friends and they came over. One of them believed themselves to be spiritually sensitive, as did I. We went to the basement, and at that point it was 11.30 at night. In the basement I was cold, colder than I've ever been in my life, and I live in Alaska. I'm telling you, I've never been that cold again. I couldn't move, and everybody else was fine. I said to them all, I can't move, and they looked at me. The sensitive one of them said, It has you. I just felt panic come over me, and at this point things got fuzzy. The sensitive one sat on the couch and said to me, Leave this boy alone, come unto me instead. Still unable to move, I felt a surge of cold in my legs, and I took two steps forward. Now understand that I hadn't been able to move myself. I had been trying up to that point for a long time and it was now 1.30 a.m. I'd taken the steps and was still cold. I looked to the sensitive one, in fear, and told them it wasn't me who took those steps. She once again said, Come unto me, I demand it. 
I was then flushed with warmth and fell to my knees. She got sick, so sick that she nearly passed out and had a headache so bad she couldn't open her eyes. We went upstairs slowly and sat down on the living room couch. Everything was dark, but the lights were on. I begged them to call our church's pastor, and they refused. By then it was about 2.30 a.m., so instead we called my dad. He didn't answer, so we called my brother who lived with him. In a groggy voice, he answered. Hello? I start fast. Get the phone to dad! I yelled in a panic, and so he listened. What's wrong, buddy? My dad questioned. I think there's something trying to possess me. I say into the phone. I heard the TV stop, and my former stepmother said, What the heck? He gets on the phone again and says, Son, we're gonna pray. I told him that I wanted to as well, so we began a prayer. He prayed that the hand of God would come over our house and provide shelter as well as a legion of angels to come and fend off whatever was there. As soon as he had finished praying, the house lit up to a brightness I'd never seen. Then, hundreds of three to four foot tall cloaked black shadowy things, screaming and howling, flooded out through the windows, and I just shut down. My dad stayed on the phone for a while longer to calm me and get everyone under control. We all went to bed shortly after around four in the morning, and I'll never forget the terror and cold I felt that night. Abraham and the Bigfoot from Michelangelo987 There's a certain acquaintance that I recall talking to last fall. His name was Abraham, but he told me to simply call him Abe. I met him at the bar in my hometown. I was entertaining myself with the bar's TV and drinks as I was waiting for my turn at the billiard table when Abe sat down next to me. Striving for confidence in just about everything I do, I engaged in conversation with this fellow. After a few minutes, I took an almost instantaneous liking to him and offered to buy him a drink. He turned down the offer, saying, Young man, you've no need to be wasting your money on an old fellow like me. I insisted on it once more, and he responded with, well, I don't suppose one drink will be too much of a burden on you. Just one, though. I have no intentions of drying you out of your money. I do thank you kindly, son. After some time, it was my turn at the billiard table. I won two games before it was Abe's turn to play the winner. Now, I'm already pretty good at billiards, but Abe was better than I was at the time. So he was the winner at the table for a while and I had to wait before we continued our conversation at the bar. We talked for a while, and I discovered that Abe was not only a good billiards player, but he was retired from a long profession in hunting. If you couldn't tell from the way he talked to me, he was an older man. So when he told me this, I correctly assumed that he had seen and done a lot of things. With drinks being consumed, we clumsily slipped under the topic of the paranormal. During the conversation, he told me about a very impressive Bigfoot encounter. 
Mind you, I was decently smashed at the time, and if I drink, which is rare, it's going to be something strong. So if someone told me a story that I remember from when I'm good and smashed, it has to be a great story. I remember my twin brother picking me up because I was, once more, too smashed to drive. I woke up the next morning thinking about the story that Abe had told me, although due to my condition at the time it was a very vague memory. So I made a priority to find him and talk to him when I wasn't messed up. With luck, I found him and asked him if he could tell me the story again. I, with his permission, recorded it on paper. I stumbled across it just recently and decided it would be in better use if it were shared around. What better way to do that than the internet? Share it with whoever you feel comfortable sharing it with, son, he said to me. So I'm doing just that. He was a resident of Michigan then, and as far as I know, he still is today. But his encounter took place in Alaska. It happened around the time he was in his late thirties. He explained to me that at the time he was experienced enough to be a professional, but not professional enough to be experienced. It's funny how phrases can really stick to your memory. He didn't specify what time of the season it was, only that it was hunting season. He told me that he was hunting for bear on that specific hunting trip, but he would witness something far more incredible than a simple bear. He started out early that morning. He arrived at the hunting resort by 5 a.m. He walked around for a while before he arrived at a preferred hunting spot and set up. He explained to me that he had learned to be very patient on waiting for animals to show up, if they would show up at all. He also said, You gotta be cool with not being able to encounter what you want to see on a hunting trip. Otherwise, it'll ruin the experience that can be gained from making mistakes. So there he was, waiting patiently for something to show up. After a certain amount of time he didn't specify on, he managed to catch a flicker of movement. He raised his rifle to look through the scope and see what it was. He managed to locate where it was, but he had a hard time identifying it. This is what he had to say about it. It was moving so fast I figured it was running. But the problem with that is every animal has a certain way of running. Whether it be a gallop like a stag or a heavy-footed sprint like a bear... I couldn't detect anything like that with whatever it was, so I assumed it was a person. Then I stopped myself, thought about it, and quickly concluded it was moving fast, too fast to be a person. Being curious in what this thing was, I kept my scoop aimed at it. After a short time of following it, I finally got a good look at him. He walked out into the sun out of the cover of the trees and stopped. What I saw spooked me at first, but then it really impressed me. What got me spooked was just the way it looked. I grew up listening to them Sasquatch stories that old and young people alike would talk about. When I saw it, I knew that's what I saw. He looked like a big man covered in real dark hair, but the hair wasn't dark enough to call it black. He was definitely a male. I didn't see no breasts. I couldn't tell how big he was, but from all them bushes he was hanging around, he looked like he was at least eight feet tall. But I'd soon discover later that he was bigger than that. His hands were so low that he could almost touch his knees without even bending over. 
His knees were obviously bent, but they wasn't bent enough to be a big problem for Stanton. When he was looking around, he didn't turn his head much. It looked like it had to move his hips to do that. The last thing I remember about this thing was just how built he was. It was almost scary just how powerful he looked. What impressed me was the fact that I didn't see him moving until he was almost in front of my naked eye. And at that age, I didn't let nothing pass to my eyes. So I didn't understand, and still don't understand, how something that big, that bulky, could almost sneak past me. I already had a hard time following it with my scoop, and I don't even think it was trying to hide from me. What also got me was just how fast he moved. Never seen something move so fast and so graceful before or after. After he was done with that explanation, he proceeded to tell me what happened next as I was eager to listen. He told me after a very short time of it looking around and standing in the same spot, it quickly looked over at him. Abe had something to say about that as well. I was thinking to myself, how could it have seen me? He's way over there and I'm way over here. I swear I remember the way it looked at me, too. He kind of looked at me as if he already knew I was there. Not in a surprise that I didn't know you were there, you know? When I saw the way he was looking at me, I panicked and shot at him. But the way he flinched was like the magazine was full of wood chips. After he fired the shot and saw the outcome, he got his stuff together as fast as he could and left. Only, after a minute of running, he toppled over something big. He didn't see it in front of him because he was paying attention to what could be behind him. He quickly recovered from the fall and turned to see what he had tripped over. He told me that he had fallen over a bear. He pulled out his rifle as quickly as he could, but the bear knocked it out of his hands, the force of the blow knocking him to his back. He said to me he never had to find a bear in his life and he was sure he would have been faster if it wasn't for all the weight on his back. He reached for his hunting knife as a last resort, but even with that in his hand, he figured he was going to die. Before the bear could finish him off, an unexpected savior came to his aid. It was a Sasquatch. He explained that the fight between these two behemoths was one that was so intense yet so quick, he didn't even know what exactly ended it. But he did know that the Sasquatch managed to kill the bear. It then looked at Abe. Abe had this to say and nothing more. When he turned around to look at me, I knew this was the one I'd just shot, because I saw the wound on him. He was shot in the shoulder, so I assumed I must have been more shaken up from looking at him than I thought, because I aimed for the middle of his chest. Even so, I shot him. So why would he come and save me? I didn't even care that he managed to follow me without me even seeing him. So after I saw the way he was looking at me, I knew I was looking at a creature that had such forgiveness that it couldn't be compared with the person. I mean, if you got shot by somebody, would you go and save his or her life right after? I knew I couldn't. But then I studied his face more, and I realized I wasn't looking at a are-you-all-right face. I was looking at a I saved you. 
You've seen what I can do. Now why don't you leave? Kind of face. So that's what I did. Remember when I said that I would find out he was bigger than eight feet tall? Well, he was. He was no doubt in the ten feet tall range. So when I understood why he was looking at me, I got pretty scared. I grabbed my rifle off the ground and started walking away. When I turned around to look at him, one last time, he was already gone. Disappeared like a ghost. I could sling you a story that I went back there a few months or even years later, and I saw him again, but I ain't no liar. I went back there many times, and I haven't seen him. I eventually stopped looking for him. And that's what happened, son. After he told me the story, I thanked him for sharing and parted ways with him. After that day, I never saw him again. And I often think to myself that this is another one of those stories in the paranormal world that even the biggest of believers would have a hard time believing in. I myself am a bit skeptical of the story, but I will never forget Abe and how a Bigfoot saved his life for a different reason. Owl's Hollow Road From Level Zero When I was in high school, my friends and I loved to ride around at night and explore new locations around town. We tried to find roads that seemed to go nowhere. Sometimes we'd try one and it would only go a mile or so to a dead end. On other occasions, we would ride for an hour before we'd gone far enough, then we'd find a way back home. Keep in mind, we lived in a decent-sized city surrounded by nothing but mountains and farmland, so we had no idea where we'd end up when we took a road on the outskirts that led off towards some mountain or field. It was often exciting, sometimes boring, but nothing major ever happened. We just smoked our weed and drank our beer while driving in the middle of nowhere with no fear of the cops. It was around 2006 we discovered maps on the internet, and we thought we might try to find a decent road to take that we'd never gone down before. After all, these maps would show us the approximate length and where it would lead to. We chose Owl's Hollow Road. This one was strange because we had never noticed it before, even though it began near the middle of town and branched off of a main road near some apartments, which we already knew well. Nonetheless, we grabbed our weed and drinks and jumped in my old blue Chevy truck for what looked like a pretty long drive. We weren't too worried, because the road ended on the main highway by a gas station that led straight back to my house. We were driving down this road that we had discovered, enjoying ourselves to the fullest, but eventually things turned out to be a bit creepy. It was completely wooded on both sides, with branches hanging over the road like some sort of tunnel. There were a few small homes at the start, but human dwellings soon stopped showing up after a few miles. We were about thirty miles in when I questioned my friends if they had any idea how long the road was. It had been quite a long time, and we hadn't seen a streetlight or even a house in miles. Their response was... No, how are we supposed to tell by the lines on this map 
I then decided to inform them that I was going to be needing gas soon, as the warning light had been on for about 15 miles now. Quickly, they flogged me with questions of, Why didn't you tell us before? We should have just turned around. I myself was enraptured with the spookiness and nothingness of this location, nestled in the valley of the mountain. It was all completely unknown to me. There turned out to be no gas stations or any homes on this road before we ran out of gas. Everyone freaked out, considering no one knew where we were, and neither did we. I told my friends to calm down, and at the very least we could just sit and smoke some, while we waited for someone to pass by. Then we could ask them for help. Immediately, they reminded me that we had not seen another car, house, or light in thirty miles. If for nothing else but to calm them down, I told them they didn't make roads for nothing. And about that time, we actually saw headlights in the distance for the first time in nearly an hour. My best friend Sam immediately jumped out and flagged down the truck that was heading towards us. The driver was a burly, white-haired, and bearded man, whose face looked like it had been cooking in the sun for seventy years. He politely asked if he could help. Yes, we ran out of gas and we're hoping you could help us out, Sam shouted. We thought no one would come. The man then informed us that he had a gas can at his house about twenty minutes down the road. The man asked if anyone would like to go with him rather than just sit out here. He claimed that some weird things went on out there. Obviously, I wasn't leaving my pride and joy in the middle of nowhere alone, and my brother and our friend John decided it would be more fun to just sit and get messed up while waiting. Sam, however, decided to hop into the bed of the man's truck, claiming he wanted to ensure he came back to help us. Sam was gone, and he wouldn't be back for a while. It was then that I noticed a fire in the woods. I pointed the fire out to John and my brother, who asked what the deal was. People probably camp out here since it's so secluded. I guess because I was high and a little drunk, I decided to go check it out and told them they could come with me or stay here. They came along, and that was a huge mistake. I had been bluffing about going alone. If they had just stayed in the truck, none of this would have happened. We followed the fire through thick brush and brambles. We even crossed a small creek, which I thought in hindsight reminded me of the one from The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, kind of creepy. We were just about to the source of the flame when it completely disappeared. Not a trace of smoke or anything as soon as we were twenty yards from it. I looked around, and I saw my companions' faces in the moonlight, stunned as I was, because another fifty yards ahead was another fire. We looked back and could still see the moon reflecting off the bright blue of my Chevrolet. At this point, we decided we had come too far and should investigate the strange fire further. Maybe we had been high and misjudged the distance. Nevertheless, we continued after the fire, which further led us into the woods. Yet, each time we got close, it would disappear and reappear further in the woods. 
I'm not joking and have witnesses to this. To this day, we still talk about this moving fire. So about the fourth time, we finally caught up to the fire, at which point we were 200 yards into the woods at least. The fire didn't move. It had stopped moving. We were able to walk near it. But that's when we saw a masked figure surrounding it, chanting something in some language we could not understand. We had been quiet and not talking at all since the first instance, so we were not noticed, not right away. As soon as my younger brother caught a glimpse of the scene, he whispered to me, They were trying to lure us here. We are meant to be sacrifices. Before I could tell him how dumb that sounded, almost as if they could hear him, every head in the ceremony turned right towards us. There must have been twenty of them. With a roar from each of them, and a scream from us, we turned and ran back the direction we came. With no fire to guide us now, we were guessing, running into trees, tripping over logs, tearing our clothes on briars. We fled as fast and as far as we could, as we were undoubtedly pursued by these people. We could hear them coming, and they most certainly were human because, like us, we could hear them injuring themselves just as we were. Finally, we all made it to the truck. I saw Sam, to my delight, pouring gas into my truck, with no sign of the man who had helped them. He waved and shouted, asking where we'd been. Is there enough gas in the truck? I shouted. Uh, yeah, I was just pouring in the rest, he replied. Get in the truck, now! I screamed frantically. Without question, maybe because he could hear the commotion behind us, he hopped in the passenger seat and opened the back door for the others. I ran around to the driver's seat as fast as I could and started the truck, or I tried to. After about five seconds of prayer and trying... She fired right up, and right on cue, a man stepped out into the middle of the road to block our way. If that's how it was going to be, it was either going to be his death or mine, and I chose his. Right before I hit him with the truck, he jumped to the side and, surprisingly, let us go. On the way, explaining everything to Sam was very simple because the man had told him he wished the others would have come too, because of the devil worshippers. The man said they go into the woods at night, and we weren't the first people to disappear out there. Sam believed us right away, because the man had left his gas and gas can with him for free, and told him it was too late to be out there. And then, of course, Sam saw the cloaked, masked man try to bar our way. Not only that, but he kept swearing he could see cloaked silhouettes staring at us the rest of the way through the woods. The road turned out to be only about ten miles further, and we were home in about half an hour. Everyone was fine, except for some minor and a few major cuts, scrapes, and bruises. One thing is sure. I now keep my tank full before going down any unknown road. 
Sleepy Hollow Scares from Joseph122 Whenever people think of Sleepy Hollow, they tend to think of Ichabod Crane, the Headless Horseman, and what happened the night Ichabod disappeared. My story doesn't involve any of these people, but it does involve the town of Sleepy Hollow and how it changed my perspective of the supernatural. Before I tell the tale, I think it's important to know a few things. First, I've gone to Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow a couple of times before this, usually as a class field trip, and while I definitely was creeped out by the stories, I never believed wholeheartedly that there was something supernatural at play. Second, my perspective on the supernatural has always been foggy, to say the least, because my father is a devoted Catholic and my stepmother is a Protestant. But my stepmother and my sister have always had the ability to see spirits and were always more connected to the supernatural than I was. But because of my parents' deferring viewpoints, I was never quite sure which one to believe more. Of course, I believed in the supernatural, but I never thought it would ever affect my life. Now that that's out of the way, I'll continue my story. This happened either my senior year of high school or after I'd graduated. I remember it happening in the fall. More specifically, just before Halloween started. My girlfriend at the time, Victoria always had a great love for anything that came from the American Revolution, and although the legend of Sleepy Hollow takes place after the Revolution, it's still tied to colonial America. And like my sister and my stepmom, Victoria had a connection with the supernatural that I did not. And so we always took trips over to Sleepy Hollow. The one specific place we usually visited was Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, one day, Victoria and I were visiting the cemetery like we always do. But on that day, we had decided to do something a little different. We went a little further into the cemetery. I thought nothing of it. After all, there were a lot of people buried here. One of the tombstones we came across was that of Washington Irving, the man who wrote about the legend of Sleepy Hollow. As we headed further into the cemetery, we came across a mausoleum. It belonged to a woman named Leona Helmsley. We couldn't go into the mausoleum because the doors were closed and locked, but that didn't stop us from trying to look through the glass doors. After trying to peer through the glass doors for a few minutes, Victoria's mother was waiting for us at the car, just a few feet away from where we were standing. We headed for the car but as soon as I got in the car, I had a really bad burning feeling on my left shoulder. I didn't know what was wrong with me, so I rolled up my shirt to see what was going on. I used the car window as a mirror. I'll never forget what I saw. On my left shoulder were claw marks the size of tiger's claws, and they were fresh. Victoria and her mother were completely shocked when they saw them. I knew for an instant that these were not made by human hands, because if they were, I would have felt them the instant it happened, and they weren't made by any tree branches passing by, 
because there were no trees above us or near us when we were at the mausoleum. After seeing my scratches, her mother took us out of the cemetery immediately. I think after this experience, it was the last time I ever went to that cemetery, and if it wasn't, I never went near that mausoleum ever again. I can't even recall the last time I've ever been to that cemetery after this. I think the only reason that I didn't get more permanent damage done to me was because I was wearing my chain and the medallions that I've had on my neck ever since I was a baby. My chain includes a cross and a St. Joseph medallion that were given to me by my godfather. So in a way, I had avoided something far worse than just a few scratches. I don't know what it was that attacked me, or why I was the only one that was affected by it, but I do know this. After the experience, I wholeheartedly believe in the supernatural. If someone were to ask me, do I think that there's such thing as spirits? I say to them, I don't think. I know they exist. I may not ever see the headless horseman, but there are definitely evil spirits in Sleepy Hollow. So, if you ever plan to go there, you best be prepared. Exorcism on Long Hollow Road From Misty K This story might sound made up, but I swear on my Bible, it's 100% true. It's also complicated and long. So I apologize, but it doesn't make sense without the long, boring backstory and supposed urban legend. I used to have a Wiccan friend who claimed to be a medium. One night while my ex and I stayed over with her and her boyfriend, one of my oldest friends, we noticed things moving and cold spots in the house, even though there was no AC or draft. I mean, heavy chain belts swaying back and forth on the hangers, despite all of us being huddled up on the other side of the room, as well as dog toys rolling across the floor, even though both dogs were asleep beside us. Being a supernatural enthusiast, and terrified at the same time, I asked her about it, and this is what she told me. A couple hundred years ago, there used to be an abandoned shack in the middle of the woods that surrounded her house. Although we live in a little suburban area, we also live very close to the Smoky Mountain National Park, so we still have a lot of undeveloped land in the area. Well, the house was occupied by a man who lost his wife in childbirth during their migration to the U.S. The family then consisted of the man and his three children. Now, this man was not a nice man and hated women, including his wife and daughter. He hated them so much that he saw no need for his oldest child, the daughter, as he had two sons to bear his family name. One night, when he realized the youngest boy was old enough to take care of himself, he went into his twelve-year-old daughter's room and tried to strangle her, but she fought back, causing him to gouge out her eyes. Her brothers, eight and six years old, tried to protect her because she had been like a mother to them, and they loved her. Enraged, the father took the lives of all three children. Those three children were the spirits inhabiting her house 
in order to get away from their father, who continued to torture them in death after he passed of old age. He, too, haunted the surrounding area, but my friend kept a protective barrier around her property so the kids would be safe from him. Whether any of this is true or not, I don't know, nor could I find any articles in our archives about such an incident. However, I do know one thing to be true. There really is an old angry and evil spirit that roams the area, and it's incredibly territorial. I know this from first-hand experience. Fast forward a couple of years, and I'm with a new ex who lives on the other side of those woods. I couldn't understand at the time, but I always felt uncomfortable in his little trailer if he wasn't home. It always felt as if someone was watching my every move. My new ex worked third shift, loading pallets of food products onto trucks for delivery. So if I stayed over on his work nights, I stayed alone from 6 p.m. until about 6 or 7 a.m. with just his sweet guard dog and the TV. One night, I actually did see a vague shadow of a person standing just in front of the back door, looking into the bedroom. The hallway light was on and shining directly onto the figure, but it was smoky with no discernible features except it was tall. It startled me so bad, I got my ex's attention to see if he noticed. Of course, he didn't, but he wasn't like my ex before him who believed heavily in the paranormal. After that, I started sleeping on the couch in spite of his protests, and him actually getting angry with me for sleeping on the couch instead of the bed, saying I'll ruin his couch. Turned out I felt comfortable sleeping on the couch rather than in the bed when alone in the house, due to the heavy iron cross hanging by the front door next to where the couch sat. It was my best friend who noticed and pointed it out. My new ex, though, didn't care. I still wasn't allowed to sleep all night on his couch. That wasn't the only reason I stopped staying over for a while, but it was the reason I didn't stay alone in his house anymore. And it also wasn't the cause of our breakup. Soon after was the end of our relationship, but not the end of the story of my haunting. My BFF, who I'll call B, was itching for the past couple of years to move out of her mom's house, and she could not do it on her own. So my now ex put in a good word with his landlord for the vacant trailer next door. Before we knew it, we were moving into the house next door, unaware of the terror that would soon follow. It started out slow at first, like most hauntings do. Doors opened on their own. Unexplainable but not ordinary house noises could be heard like tapping on windows with clearly no one there and random voices that didn't belong to us. Typical haunting signs. Except we were seeing shadows, and B was actually a medium unwillingly. She could see our guests as if she were seeing me, like the sixth sense type of manifestations, if you will. I was and still am sensitive, but not like B. I believed her, though, when she told me three children an older girl about twelve to thirteen and two younger boys, wanted in the trailer to seek refuge. This was about the time my Wiccan friend and her boyfriend broke up, 
and no longer lived in the neighborhood on the other side of the woods. These spirits were bound to the area, and had nowhere to go to get away from the evil spirit that plagued these woods. B, being skeptical of all the spirits she met, said it's best if we don't interfere, because helping them will only bring more need of help, and she didn't have the energy or time to deal with wayward ghosts. Keeping the bad spirit away took enough effort. After a while, things calmed down, until one morning when I was headed to work. B had already left hours ago, so it was just me at home to lock up. I checked the old sliding bolt lock and the tumbler lock on the back door, then made sure they were in place and locked the front door on my way out. I made it to my car and started the engine. When I realized, I left my phone on the counter and went back inside. To my horror and shock, the back door was wide open, swinging in a breeze not strong enough to move those doors. I grabbed my baseball bat from behind the couch and scouted the tiny trailer, only to find it was empty. Terrified and creeped out, I quickly locked both doors and floored it to work. After coming home and telling B what happened, she hung a giant authentic dream catcher next to the back door. A Native American friend we worked with had blessed it and given it to B for her birthday one year. We didn't have any more issues with the doors opening after that. What we did have, however, was a visitor in the cow field behind the house. After hanging the dream catcher and cleansing the house ourselves, we noticed a difference in the atmosphere, and that it had shifted to the back where the field was. Now, to get to the bathroom, you had to pass the back door, and it had a little diamond window you could look out of, meaning you were seeing whatever was out there. One night we were relaxing, eating dinner, and watching movies, when I had to take a bathroom break. I didn't make it past the door when a strange light in the field caught my eye. Quickly, and hushed, I called B over to check it out. Now there was another house a distance away, and the porch light was that orange color you see on older houses, and it was on at the moment. However, there were three lights shining in the field, and two of them were bigger and brighter than the distant porch light. We could tell it was closer, and actually crouched in the field, as long hay and unkempt grass swayed in the foreground of the aura. B said to just ignore it and come back to the couch. She even taped black construction paper over the little window, so nothing could look in on us. It didn't help all the dead birds and rodents we started finding around the fence line, or the terrifying screams we heard every day around dusk for a week either. I understand the yellow eyes, dead animals, and eerie screams could be explained by a lost mountain lion which wander in from time to time, but the timing of it all was too coincidental for us both. Skip ahead a couple of months, and things had settled more with only the occasional weird item moving from one place to another, or a disembodied voice here and there. A mutual friend of ours had just been released from his military contract with a medical discharge and had moved back home. I'll call him L for short. Excited to see L, we cooked and had a few mixed drinks. We literally had two each, nothing to get drunk on. 
At this point, it's important to note that B had been on a new medication for a while to stabilize a misdiagnosed bipolar disorder and shouldn't have been drinking with the medicine. That being said, she still did socially. Occasionally, we had wine coolers with dinner, being the independent and mature adults we were at 22. This is important because I'd seen everything she did while on this medicine and drinking. With or without alcohol, the most she did was eat and drink things in her sleep or talk excessively in her sleep. She never did anything like what I'm about to tell you. Let me stress this is very important so you can understand that what happened was not a result of the medication or combining it with alcohol. So we're sipping on mixed drinks, listening to music, dancing and having a good time, catching up, when B stops and says she has to use the bathroom. She wasn't complaining about feeling sick or was troubled in any way, she just had to pee. The next thing I hear is the lack of a door shutting and B throwing up into the toilet. Concerned, I asked if she needed a wet rag or water, only to be answered with the sound of the door slamming so hard it shook the whole house. I called out worried that something was wrong, and B screamed four words that made my blood turn cold. There's someone in here. She screamed as loud as she could. The bathroom door was literally four steps away from where I was standing, so Al and I rushed to the door to see what was going on, only to find the door was locked. I was panicking at this point, because I heard B scream for help, followed by silence. L took action and went into the kitchen for anything to get the door open. He made quick work of the knob and flung the door open, pistol in hand. Except... There was only B on the floor, cornered next to the wall and tub. She was curled up with her head between her knees like a child. I asked nervously if she was okay and said there wasn't anyone but us here. That's when B shot her head up and gave me the most bone-chilling glare I've ever seen and have yet to see on another person. Her eyes were bloodshot, like she hadn't slept in weeks and her voice was dark as she looked from me to Elle and began screaming something in what I later learned was Swedish. She was screaming, I'll kill you in your sleep, in Swedish, and she was pointing to us over and over. Horrified and knowing something just wasn't right, I can only describe what I did next as feeling like I was moving in slow motion. It felt as if something else had taken over my body as I calmly stepped into B's room, grabbed a little jade cross I'd bought her as a souvenir a long time ago, prayed to God that this worked, and threw it around her neck. Instantly, her eyes were no longer bloodshot and dark, her face was confused and scared, and she asked what we were doing with her in the bathroom floor and us standing over her. I almost cried. I asked her, do you not remember anything that just happened? She said no. The last thing she remembered was entering the bathroom, and then everything was black, until she saw us towering over her. She didn't even remember throwing up. She wasn't joking either. It wasn't a prank and there was no ha-ha gotcha moment. We were all pretty shaken, 
as we silently came to the realization that I had just exercised an evil entity out of my best friend, possibly the same one that had been stalking the area for decades. What makes me think that or believe my Wiccan friend's story? The family was allegedly Swedish, and B had no prior knowledge of hardly any of the supposed urban legend. We weren't able to put all the pieces together until after the creepy but swift exorcism. I didn't notice where the woods and two neighborhoods lined up with each other until digging for answers. I didn't stay in that house much longer after that, opting to move in with my now husband. I do know one thing, though. You can't talk about him, or he will come. That's how B ended up possessed. We were talking about everything that had been happening with L when everything went downhill. We were talking about him when we saw the eyes in the field, and in the beginning when the spirit children came to us. We won't be making that mistake ever again, and to this day I try not to talk about the spirit I named, He Who Comes When You Call. I don't know if that entity is a human spirit turned evil or if it was ever human to begin with. I don't know what it is, but I steer clear of it and anything to do with it. I still sense it passing through sometimes, but that's when I pray and try to be with literally anyone else if they're home. My husband doesn't believe me either, so if you don't, that's okay. I don't need you to believe me to know what we went through or to be terrified of Long Hollow Road. Things aren't what they seem at the Grand Canyon. From Tony O3 A long time ago, when I was a kid, my grandpa used to take me out to hike on the trails at the Grand Canyon from time to time. He had married my grandma there, and he'd always found the setting fascinating and peaceful. Grandpa had always been a quiet, thinking man, and he did his utmost best to teach me things. The man fervently believed that level-headedness was the most important in any situation, and having both knowledge and wisdom together should be the goal of any good man. I respected him from the start and went with him on any adventure I could. Hunting, fishing, climbing, all things my grandpa taught me. By the time I was fifteen, I was so sure that I understood that man. Then that understanding vanished within a single night. We were closing in on a night hike, nearly three quarters of the way back to grandpa's old pickup truck. Instead of finishing out the trail, He glanced at me and nodded his head toward the right, as he veered in that direction over a steep hill and directly through sparse patches of sagebrush. I followed without a word. Sure, I was curious, but I was dog-tired that evening, and almost certain he just wanted to show me a plant I hadn't seen before. Before long, he sat at the crest of the hill and sat down in the dirt. I planted myself right next to him. He shushed me, though I hadn't said a word yet, then pointed down towards the shallow valley in the distance. There was a faint path there, not much else. But my grandpa wouldn't just point for no reason. I glanced at him, 
He looked at me, then leaned in close, so I had a better look at where his finger was pointing. His arm, my compass, I soon located it. It looked like a black twig in the canvas that was this twilight scene. It appeared to be a person in the distance, the silhouette of one at least. Instinctively, I asked aloud, Who is that? A sharper shush from Grandpa reminded me that for some yet unspoken reason we should not be talking right now. He only wanted me to watch. We must have sat there for an hour. My back was aching, and it was beginning to get chilly. I wanted to go home, but I knew better than to complain. After drawing my name in cursive in the dirt for the dozenth time, I looked up, and I saw that the figure had disappeared. There wasn't a place to hide in the distance anywhere. Where would that silhouette of a person have gone? I thought I'd see it again. Grandpa's voice, after such a long silence, made me jump. After composing myself and wiping the dirt from my finger, I noticed he was frowning. Wish I hadn't brought you tonight, but now you know it's there. Hesitant to speak, I forced out a question. What was it, Papa? Don't know, he sighed. The aging man wiped a stream of sweat from his forehead. It was too cold for sweat at this point. His hand quivered every inch of the way. My father showed it to me when I was little. He wasn't sure what it was either, but once it found us, he had no choice. Just looked like a man to me. Probably another hiker. My eyebrow raised. I'd never seen him so on edge over something so benign. Wish that was the case. Listen here, and listen close, son. He picked himself up off the ground and stretched his wary form. You'll see that figure on these hiking trails again. And when you do, you sit there in the dirt and you watch it. You watch it till it turns its back and walks away. And don't you look away until he's not there anymore. And come alone if you can. I smiled awkwardly, thinking he was telling me a weird joke of some sort. But the man's face was stern and cold. He was nothing but serious. Yes, sir, I replied. I watched a tear fall from his cheek. Suddenly, the old man stepped forward and hugged me tighter than he ever had. You're growing into a good man. Don't you ever let this horror of a world change that. Okay, Papa. I managed to say, choking back tears. I didn't really even know why I was crying. He cleared his throat as he pulled away, then nodded, just as he had before letting me know we were headed back to the truck. The last thing I remember of that night was stepping out of the truck when he brought me home. He said something to me just after saying goodnight. I... I'm sorry I fell asleep back there. What? 
I hadn't even noticed he'd fallen asleep. I mean, I was so bored I'd perfected my name in cursive. Some poor hiker is going to find my dirt scrawlings, I thought, and wonder what kind of narcissist child lurked those trails. It's okay. I'm pretty tired myself. Have a good night, Papa. He smiled, nodded one more time, then drove away. Grandpa didn't wake up that morning. Doctors said his heart just stopped. Then and only then did I finally understand real heartbreak. He had been my only true friend, and with him gone I felt truly alone in the world. Mom and Dad were quick to remind me Grandpa had been in his sixties, that for their family, that was a full life. Men in our family are lucky to make it to their late sixties like Grandpa had. They explained to me that he was in a better place, but selfishly I didn't want Grandpa in a better place, I wanted him here. Here he could take me fishing again, he could laugh like he did whenever I asked him to bait my hooks for me, because the worms grossed me out. He could smile like he used to when Grandma was around, to share an iced tea with him on the front porch. It's a dire realization for a person, when you finally realize that everyone is destined to see their loved ones die. For a while, I was so upset that everything that reminded me of Grandpa, I avoided. After that, these things felt negative to me. So for years I didn't rock climb, I didn't fish, I didn't hike, I didn't even drink iced tea anymore. In my mid-twenties, my mood began to change. Having met a girl, getting married, and having a child of my own on the way, I realized banishing myself from the things I loved most was the worst way to respect my grandpa's legacy and memory. These were things I wanted to share with my own kid. I manned up and planned a hiking trip with my wife, Vanessa. She wasn't too far in her pregnancy, where she shouldn't be moving around too much, but I would still need to do all the heavy lifting. Not a problem. Our trip to that very same hiking trail at the Grand Canyon I'd last been on with Grandpa was a pleasant one. The skies were clear, it wasn't terribly hot, and the trails were almost vacant. We planned to camp for the night at the peak of the trail, then circle back to the car in the morning. One night would be easy for both of us, I thought. The day passed by too quickly. My wife enjoyed the pleasant warmth and absolutely loved how much I recalled my grandpa teaching me, like the different names of various plants and animals we saw. But really, I think she was just happy seeing me so happy. At the thought of all the years spent away from this place, my throat became tight. I was happy, but I felt full of regret for staying gone for so long. We soon made it to the planned camping spot off the center of the trail. I prepared the tent, started a small fire, and prepared some camping MREs I'd bought at a Dick's Sporting Goods. I thought they looked tasty from the packaging, but in this case, you might actually want to judge a book by its cover. My wife nearly vomited from the meal, maybe partly due to the pregnancy, being sensitive to certain tastes and smells and all that. 
but my feelings were similar. After a bite of my turkey chili in a pouch, I spat it in the dirt and placed the remainder in the trash bag, double-bagged it, and placed it tightly in my hiking bag. Instead, we ended up filling up on marshmallows. After that, we lay in the tent together, joking about terrible baby names, before she fell asleep. Not long after, I drifted off as well. Hey, there's someone watching us. My wife's voice, curious and soft, woke me. What? Uh, the sun's not even completely up yet, I grumbled. I said there's someone out there just watching us. He's just standing there like half a mile away from us. I was just about to place a pillow over my head to blot out the first ribbons of soft morning light when my eyelids shot wide open. Suddenly, I felt breathless. My heart seemed to be doing flips in my chest. I pushed myself off of my sleeping bag and I ran outside in nothing but boxer shorts. I found my wife standing, facing the sunrise, protecting her eyes with a hand on her forehead. When she heard me, she glanced at me for a moment and pointed. Look, over there. My stomach turned at the familiarity of the situation. I stepped over next to her and followed her finger, her arm a dreadful compass guiding me to something I refused to believe. There, on a distant, seldom-trodden path, stood a figure like a dark twig sprouting from the horizon exactly as I'd seen it all those years ago. Who do you think it is? she asked. Shh. Sweat drenched from my still cold forehead. As if on autopilot, I sat on the ground and stared at him. He didn't move. What are you? Hun, sit and hush. I demanded impatiently doing my best to not sound too disrespectful to my wife, who already appeared so confused. Can you blame her? Playing along, she whispered. What's going on? Who is that? I was horrified at the thought of saying too much. After all, I never did understand why Grandpa had wanted me to be so silent in front of this figure. So quickly, I thought of an answer that was short and to the point. One of the last things my grandpa ever saw. Somehow it worked. Vanessa remained silent, waiting there on the ground with me. I could tell she was calm and patient, but my insides felt like soup. With absolutely no idea as to why, I knew I had to listen to my grandpa's warnings. I sat there for two hours, staring at the figure, watching him, waiting for him until finally he turned and began to walk away. I started to get up, but caught myself. I didn't take my eye off the figure until it faded right out of existence. It was as if it had never been there. I turned toward my wife. She was slumped over a bit, having fallen asleep at some point. Guess she was still tired, too. As my heart slowed... I began to make sense of it all as best I could. 
I'm sorry I fell asleep. My grandpa had said to me, the last thing he ever said to me. It wasn't some random, needless apology. He had been sincere about it. He apologized. But for what? Because he fell asleep and stopped watching the figure. All while I had played in the dirt, not paying attention at all. With no one watching this figure, it had disappeared. But to where? Somehow I think my grandpa knew. I wholeheartedly believe that same figure came for him in the night and stole his breath away. And since I had seen it, even as a child, it had now appeared to me again, and now my pregnant wife had seen it. The hike back to the car was the fastest hike I'd ever done, and easily the most stressful one. My mind reeled with questions. Would it return at any moment? Would it come back at a later time somewhere at our own home? What is the figure? On the drive back, I told my wife everything. Most importantly, I explained, if you ever see that figure again, stare at it until it's gone and do not look away. You see, I think that's the rule. If you see it in the distance, drop everything and stare until it disappears. Because if it disappears while you're not looking, it will come for you. After all, my grandpa's father had also never awakened from his slumber. I should have listened to my grandpa. I never should have come back or I should have at least come alone. But I think both my grandpa and I didn't take this thing seriously until it was too late. I can't help but worry. This will now carry on to our child that my wife carries. Grand Canyon Skeletal Figure From J. Ion My uncle and his wife decided to go on a tour of Western American states for their 15th wedding anniversary celebration. They first visited Hawaii, then Washington State, before going down south to Oregon, California, and then went eastward to Nevada, and finally Arizona. They, of course, visited the major landmarks and cities in each of those states, from Honolulu and the Volcanoes National Park to Yosemite, Los Angeles, Death Valley, and Las Vegas. My uncle and aunt enjoyed every moment of their trip. Everything was going according to plan, except for a small incident that, to this day, my uncle and aunt do not see eye to eye on. My aunt outright rejected whatever my uncle said. While in Grand Canyon National Park, their tour guide took them to a narrow trail that was near the cliff edge of one of the glens where they could see the flowing brook and its banks. My uncle walked about 25 meters ahead of my aunt, who was taking her own sweet time strolling at a leisurely pace while taking pictures of everything around her. He was practically alone on the trail, as the people who walked ahead of him were at least fifteen meters away. My uncle reached an area of the trail where it curves around a large bend at an almost ninety-degree angle, so it created somewhat of a blind spot where he could not see what was in front on the trail, and after he passed the bend, he couldn't see what was behind him. He stood by the bend to wait for his wife, 
As she was taking a while to get to him, he started looking around the canyon. When he looked at the flowing brook at the bottom of where he stood, he noticed something walking from behind the bend on the bank of the brook. He was shocked to see a very tall human skeleton walking into plain sight. It was an off-white complete set of a fully grown adult skeleton with absolutely no flesh nor skin. Even the eye sockets were completely hollow. My uncle said he could see what was behind the skeleton through the gap between its ribs and pelvis. My uncle began yelling for his wife to come and look. As my aunt was still some distance away, and the trail was narrow and near a cliff edge, she could not just run towards him. He frantically turned his head to yell at her to hurry up, and turned his head back to where he saw the skeleton, and it was gone. There was no trace of it, not even footprints, nothing to indicate its existence. When my aunt finally caught up to him, she nervously asked what happened, thinking that my uncle was in an emergency. He stared with wide eyes while pointing at the spot where he saw the skeleton just moments earlier. He yelled over and over again that there was a skeleton there, a real skeleton walking by itself, a human skeleton. My aunt was flabbergasted. She told him that he might be suffering from heat stroke and imagining the skeletal remains of animals being reanimated as a result. My uncle repeatedly insisted that he saw what he saw, but my aunt rebutted by saying she was very certain that she saw nothing out of the ordinary along the trail, and was sure my uncle was experiencing symptoms of heat stroke, dehydration, or exhaustion. After some time arguing back and forth, my aunt decided to drag my uncle to a meeting point at the end of the trail where she asked their tour guide to provide some first aid to my uncle for heat stroke and dehydration. While the tour guide checked for injuries, my uncle told the tour guide what he saw. The tour guide, very sympathetically, replied that my uncle is not the only visitor who has experienced something unusual in the Grand Canyon. The tour guide explained that ever since the Grand Canyon was open to public visits, there have been reports of strange sightings and unexplainable encounters. Some people attribute these strange happenings to UFOs. Some believe that the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans by European settlers left an indelible mark on the land, while some think that the Grand Canyon is the location of an interdimensional doorway, or that it is the chosen home of supernatural beings on account of its remote location, population scarcity, and extreme climate. When my uncle and aunt returned home from their trip, my uncle told relatives about what he saw, which my aunt will always counter with logical explanations. This has always been a point of contention for them, because my uncle and aunt rarely argue, and they're the most loving married couple most people know. To this day, after their 30th anniversary, my uncle and aunt still bicker about what happened in the Grand Canyon. My uncle even suggested that, for their 35th wedding anniversary celebration, they should go to the Grand Canyon a second time, in hopes that my aunt might catch a glimpse of the supernatural herself. Chupacabra at the Grand Canyon From 
Hexbro. This is a short experience, but a rather creepy one. It was 12 years ago. I would have been 14, traveling the night roads through Arizona with my family. My mom and dad had planned a road trip that would take us close enough to the Grand Canyon to get out and see it for ourselves. When we passed it by, it was breathtaking. I had no idea just how deep and vast the Grand Canyon was until then. But I didn't get to see it long, and we weren't going to be able to get out and take a look as we'd planned. Because, suddenly, my dad screamed from behind the wheel. The SUV swerved and skidded to a stop, slinging my brother, my mom, and I toward the opposite end of the SUV. When the vehicle became motionless, my heart was pounding out of my chest, and my mother demanded to know what on earth was going on. My dad, though, sat quietly, staring out the driver's side window of the SUV. Naturally, we all looked in the same direction, wondering what had stolen his attention and nearly caused us to crash. Well, we all soon saw it. It was standing halfway on the road and halfway on the dirt that surrounds the road. It was four-legged, a creature unlike anything I'd ever seen. Its shape roughly resembled a dog, but instead of fur it had scales that glistened from the beams of our headlights, which, due to my dad swerving, were now aimed partially in its direction. Its mouth reminded me of a dog's as well, a long, thin maw. But there were visible teeth protruding from the sides, especially two unnaturally long ones at the front. Just looking at those things made me shudder. And the color of the thing was terrifying too. Had our headlights not been on it now, or had the creature been standing in the middle of the desert, we never would have seen it. It was the color of the dirt, that reddish-brown color, built perfectly to hunt in this environment. The creature was obviously startled as much as we were. The thing's chest was heaving as it breathed heavily. It stared at us. No other part of it was moving except its chest, as if it was hoping to still be hidden. Nope, we could see it full and well. After a momentary staring contest, the creature half scurried and half galloped into the rocks and desert in the opposite direction. When I saw it retract from the road, chills ran up my spine, because it almost entirely disappeared to my eyes, almost. We collected ourselves as Dad rushed us out of there into the nearest hotel we could find. There we discussed what happened and even laughed about it. To this day, we tell this story to friends and family and wholeheartedly believe that what we saw was a chupacabra.